and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team, coming to you live from our radio and television studios, Northwest Pennsylvania. Got a great show lineup for you uh, as the program unfolds. We're going to have Alicia, Alicia Powell, World Net Daily author, at the bottom of the hour, and then of course uh, uh, one of my favorite people, Peter Berry. Uh, Chowka coming up at uh, the top of next hour. And then the third hour, a uh, very special guest, Chris Gabotz. You know him through his father. Well, you know him independent, but Dave Gabotz, Chris Gabotz, uh, Muslim Mafia, and uh, taking on uh, care or care taking on the Council of Americans Long Relations taking on them. Uh, interesting story indeed, and uh, that's uh, that, that's going to that's going to kind of exemplify illustrate how things are playing out. They were the first in the uh, barrel, so to speak. That is Chris Kabatz and uh, Dave and others with respect to uh, care and and the lawfare aspect and make no mistake ladies and gentlemen we are in a war and uh, just to start out the program I, I have a, a number of, of issues on my on my plate here uh, the war is coming at us from all sides you've got the normal swamp creatures in D.C. The, the well-entrenched people inside Washington, D.C., the elected officials and those appointed by the elected officials, whether it be from the Clinton administration to the Obama regime to uh, even before that to George H.W. and George W. Bush, the globalists, the fifth column, it was during the Obama regime, of course, that we saw the um, increase of the Muslim infiltration into our government. So if I can paint a picture for you with respect to where we're at today, and I'd like to do that to lay out the foundation for tonight, as well as lay out the foundation. If I were to sit down in front of a camera, which is very popular to do nowadays, especially in vehicles. Just sit in a vehicle and you do do a video. I would say this: number one, we are we are at a war, or we are in a war, and uh, the war is asymmetrical. First of all, we are we are participants, unwilling, in a uh, really a civil war, a war that's taking place within our own country and within our own government a war that we didn't start we didn't ask for but a war that exists nonetheless and you can go back in time 
you can go you can go back a, a century. I just would like to hit a couple of high points. Of course, you've got the establishment of the Federal Reserve. We've had G. Everett Griffin on to speak about that. Then, of course, from there, you had uh, the McCarthy era. Senator Joe McCarthy was absolutely correct in his exposure of the infiltration in our State Department, in our government, of the communist element post-World War II. Now, Joe McCarthy had his demons, and Joe McCarthy wasn't, oftentimes, wasn't the best messenger. But to learn about Joe McCarthy and to learn about that era, I highly recommend Blacklisted by History by M. Stanton Evans. Because one thing M. Stanton Evans does is he tells us that even into the 21st century, papers were being removed from the National Archives that identified the communist infiltration in our government. Now keep that in the back of your mind as I progress with this monologue. The communist infiltration had taken over our foreign policy. But perhaps more important than that, it took over our domestic policy and ceded our foreign policy to what today is known as the neocons. The more the, the war machinery, as President Dwight D. Eisenhower referenced the military-industrial congressional complex. So, you have got this communist ideology, infiltration into our government. At the same time, concurrent with that, you have that communist ideology infiltrating our infiltrating academia whether it be at the kindergarten or the elementary school level well from there to the level of the uh, college the universities and that's that's where it was refined so as you move beyond the 1950s into the 1960s you have this infiltration of this communist ideology into academia, specifically higher academic uh, universities. And it begins to coalesce. Meanwhile, you have a refinement, as we see today, of Common Core, which is nothing more than a socialist experiment or communist experiment that is part and parcel to what took place back in the 50s and 60s at the higher levels so that the we saw the infiltration post world war 2 of the communist ideology the uh, tentacles spread out into the various departments the establishment of the Department of Education, of course, 
and that founded upon the bedrock of communist, of socialism and communism. Soon the students, the protesters, became the teachers. And we see moving forward this, again, this refinement being instituted and having been instituted right through the numerous administrations and as I like to call Obama the Obama regime post 9-11 you had the the, neo, the rise of the neocon the police state America during World War II or I'm sorry the, the uh, Nazis during World War II weaponized the Muslims Peter Lavenda, regardless of what you think of him as as a man, um, his investigative research product is 100% on the money. You saw the Nazis control the Muslims, work together with the Muslims, and even to a lesser extent, the Muslims working with the Americans under FDR at least at arm's reach. Now I'm giving you a huge picture here and believe it or not where we're going to end up is where we are today with respect to Donald Trump Jr. And you might think this is a long road. It is a long road. But in order to understand what is taking place today, you've got to understand the elements that took place in history that are misrepresented every single day in our classrooms and in the media and in conversation. It's all misrepresented because the history is incorrect. In some cases, it's rewritten. In other cases, it's expunged, which is the reason I mentioned M. Stanton Evans when he wrote the book. And Mr. Evans has is deceased now, but when he wrote the book Blacklisted by History, and a subsequent book, but that particular one, on three different occasions in the first 30 pages, I believe, of the book, he states that he went to the National Archives and other areas to to obtain copies of documents that he knew existed that were expunged from the National Archives about the communist infiltration. Now, my question to you is why we'll say in the late or during throughout the period of the 1990s and into the 2000s why and that's when these documents were taken why why were they taken so late in history you have to ask yourself of what relevance could they have provided given that period of considering it was a half a century ago at that time 
the answer exists in the expungement of certain aspects of history that would that would lay bare the communist infiltration 911 opened up the doors for the so-called military industrial complex congressional complex and neocons and created what the cold war the end of the cold war war stopped and that is an enemy but an enemy that is not a nation state an enemy that is so nebulous that the war is everywhere and the war of course that I'm referencing is the war against the, the Muslims versus the West go back to 1970s in the 1970s the architect of the modern weaponization of Islam just passed away Zygmunt Brzezinski Mika Brzezinski's father Zygmunt Brzezinski weaponized Islam for the second time in the 20th century back in the late 70s for use against Russia, or the, I'm sorry, at that time, the Soviet Union, to drag the Soviet Union into Afghanistan, mire them up into their own Vietnam, and bankrupt them. That was one element of an asymmetrical war against the Soviet Union by the United States, waged by the neocons. That led, ultimately, that was one of several components that led to the downfall of the Soviet Union, of which Putin never forgot. Another aspect to the downfall of the Soviet Union and, oh, the downfall of communism was the war that involved currency. Of course, there was a war that took place waged by the United States that assailed the currency of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is flooded with, with counterfeit notes. The Soviet Union, the United States, the neocons at that time did much to, it, in, this included members of the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations, in cooperation with the Mossad, in cooperation with the Vatican, the Jesuits. All of these players and Western intelligence gathered together to take down the, to the, Soviet, the Soviet Union that included uh, some uh, uh, very punitive monetary attacks. As we continue forward in history, this, of course, the wall fell. Big celebration. East Berlin, West Berlin, now it's just unified Berlin. The Russians, uh, the Soviet Union was no longer Gorbachev. Remember those days. This is important. And I'm going to be very quickly wrapping this up to bring it to the present day the west 
And the American people were convinced, absolutely convinced, as they sat in front of their television sets in 1991, 1992, 1993, well, after subsequent to the fall of the wall. That communism was dead, no longer a threat. And there was widespread applause. I would agree that communism, as it was illustrated in the nation-state of the Soviet Union, is no longer a threat. But that communism ideology remained and infiltrated what percolated through the 40 or post-World War II in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s percolated inside the United States. Once the wall fell, the war became different. It became more covert. And that infiltration began anew the communist ideology. The Clinton administration back in the 90s advanced that communist ideology, that communist agenda, so far, so quickly, with communist China, with respect to the technology transfers. Remember Charlie Tree, remember Loral, remember all of these seemingly disparate events. They're coming home to roost today in the form of North Korea. If you want to look at it even larger, you've got Pakistan having the, the, the nuclear, being a nuclear power. And of course, uh, Iran being a nuclear power. Did that happen by accident? Absolutely not. How did one person or one group of people in a secret project back in the 1940s that developed this nuclear weapon, how did it how did it blossom to where it's at today? But that's a matter for another time. So, you you have the stage that is set ultimately for a third world war, and that's what we're looking at today. Now, as we see things progress, <clears throat> you had, uh, of course, the co-presidency of Bill and Hillary Clinton. Remember Hillary Clinton, Hillary Care. Remember they were going to revamp the health care system. You're talking about one-fifth of this nation's economy. Didn't fly back then, did it? All right. However, the Clintons did many other things that advanced this socialist, not necessarily communist, but socialist ideology during Bill Clinton's tenure. Then you had Hillary Clinton as the senator, then secretary of state. All throughout this time, a period of self-enrichment for the Clintons, leading to a foundation that acted as a catalyst for a number of things, including self, or in addition to self-enrichment. That foundation acted as a catalyst 
for changing, or for, I should say, assaulting our representative Republican and compelling change through bribery and through compromise. We had, of course, 9-11, the neocons and what have you. Think and ask yourself one question. September 12, 2001, if you were of the age of majority and paying attention, and if anyone would have walked up to you and said in seven years, you're going to have a president, if not Muslim himself would put Islam ahead of any other religious ideology and political ideology because that's what Islam is. I know personally a couple of police officers, one fireman, and quite a few friends that would have punched me right in the mouth if I would have said that. As someone who stood behind the crime scene tape of 9-11 at Ground Zero, briefly seeing the bloodstained sidewalks, seeing the rubble, however brief, but getting the, the shall we say, the, the, the uh, backdoor tour and seeing grown men cry and grown women cry and talking with these people. None of them ever expected Barack Hussein Obama as the 44th president of the United States. Not really the 44th president, considering the fact that he is, and I would submit based on the evidence, he is constitutionally ineligible to have held that office. Of course, you talk about that, you lose listeners, you lose People will say, no, that's, you can't say that. But that is the facts, according to Mike Zullo, Sheriff Arpaio, and others involved in that investigation. You can hear, Joe and I interviewed uh, Sheriff Arpaio and others about that very situation. But he was selected for that very time period. So it went from the communist agenda and ideology to a communist Muslim ideology and Islamic ideology that tied in with this. Again, Islam was weaponized, but this time it was weaponized to advance toward World War III. And that's where we are today. Hillary Clinton was the person, of course, just to remind everyone, she was going to be coronated as the next President of the United States. She lost. Donald Trump won. He inherited a mess in the sense that every, um, every department, every agency, every individual, every uh, statesman, and I use that term lightly, they were expecting Hillary Clinton. And in a continuation, in an advancement of First Clinton, Bush, and then the Obama agenda didn't happen. America suffered whiplash on November 9th, 2016. Cultural whiplash because of the breeding done by Obama and his social justice warriors. 
ideological whiplash because all of a sudden it's not, you know, it certainly was not going to be uh, the, the same uh, the same ideology. And, of course, um, have, subsequent to that, uh, or in addition to that, in addition to all of this, what we saw was the whiplash that uh, that occurred in the intelligence industry. Intelligence, foreign and domestic. It was at that time the Never Trumpers, the Republicans in name only, John McCain, um, Lindsey Graham, and others set out to work with opposition research groups to take down the Donald Trump administration. They're still working to do that. In fact, it was John McCain who dispatched his assistant to go across the Atlantic to get that PP dossier from the Orbis Group. The Guardian has a story on that today. And, of course, it was James Comey that uh, received it and leaked additional information subsequent to uh, subsequent to uh, really him becoming the head of the FBI. And we must understand the FBI was made into a political machine, as was the Department of Justice, under Obama, under Clinton, under both Bushes. That is being undone right now. People are saying, why aren't these people in handcuffs? Folks, you are undoing decades upon decades of infiltration, of ideological uh, entrenchment, and people who have been there and have given their life to make this a communist nation by destroying the Repu- by destroying this republic, taking out this republic, and replacing this with this communist utopia that doesn't exist for complete control over you and I. That's how we got where we're at today. We are seeing now the pocket letter. The pocket letter known as uh, or depicted by Donald Trump Jr. is being set up by the uh, uh, Russians, so to speak. Not Russians, but actually people on our side. Folks, we're going to be right back. I'm sorry it took so long, but I think the larger picture, the architecture needed to be really stood up. And, and a golden thread running through this, the currency of the elite. Children, pedophilia, big part of this. Um, but that's, uh, that's another story. Joe, sorry, thank you so much for allowing me that time. Yeah, I'm here. We'll be right back, folks. Don't go anywhere. In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. 
T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Review states, Readers of End Times Fiction will be hard-pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast-paced. Blue Wink Reviews boldly states, Fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought-provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book 1, Precipice. Book 2, Pentecost. And Book 3, Penance. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. Exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. to our second segment of this evening where we are joined by journalist Alicia Pau. She's a writer at WorldNet Daily and uh, she's a frequent guest on our show and she covers a lot of news analysis and commentary from her point of view as an investigative journalist uh, with our new partner WorldNet Daily. Alicia, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hi. Nice to see you all again. Well, thanks for, uh, uh, it's and I guess you, you got a cold and that's always rough, uh, doing this kind of thing when, when you feel under the weather, but thanks for joining us anyway. Uh, we got a lot of places we can go to tonight. Um, you were, during the break here, we were just talking about some of the stuff that you've written over the last week. And let's start with the, um, the one year anniversary of Seth Rich. And you said there was a vigil held on Monday. Yes. Well, there, there were no candles. I thought we'd show up to, you know, a bunch of people with candles at a vigil, but there were approximately maybe 40 or 50 people there. But these people came from around the country, people from New York, um, Texas, just all over the place. And it was like a breath of fresh air compared to the last time I did a man on the street or interviewed members of the public about Seth Rich because all of these people were 
really informed. They've all written, all the reports I've written and others have written about Seth Rich. And um, so they started off in the Spirit of Justice Park, um, wearing Amer- uh, patriotic clothes, holding American flags, American flag clothing. And um, then they marched over to the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And that's when things really started to get a little controversial. Um, we saw, we saw staffers of the DNC staring out the window, like kind of embarrassed, I guess. And they were walking out of the building, just kind of scoffing at everyone. And you have all of these protesters holding big signs saying, arrest John Podesta, um, and stuff about Pizzagate. And, um, it was, it was, it was, it was for people who've been reporting on it, cause I myself wanted to go to the DNC headquarters and see who we could talk to, um, about Seth Rich. Just even if they want to run away from us. So, um, it was kind of refreshing. <laughs> even though there wasn't a big turnout, I really don't think that they promoted the event enough. Um, or there would have been, I believe. Alicia, um, and unless people have been living under a rock, everyone knows who Seth Rich is. Can, can, can I? Some people are living under a rock. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> that, that, that's very true. Can you, um, what did, factually, where are we at factually with, uh, what do we know factually about, uh, uh, about him right now? Anything new on that and, or anything you want to cover? And then again. Uh, there's uh, new stuff that really, really bombshell information and we can't report on it because the people who are telling us this information don't want to lose their jobs. I'll just tell you that they're members of the MPD, the Metropolitan Police Department. They're, you know, one of them's a detective, an investigator that worked on the case. They, I can't mention their names. But they told us some stuff last week, earlier this week that, you know, on Monday, uh, we just love to report it, but we can't because we're not going to be like, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post sourcing anonymous sources or sourcing an anonymous source who's, source who's quoting an anonymous source. It's just, that's just ridiculous. So there are people out there, for sure, who have information that's eye-opening and they really just have to have the courage to come forward with this information and they probably will the more t- I think time's on our side in this case even the family members the more that they see the deep that the Democratic National Committee is just um, just not really putting any effort for um, if they really care about finding who killed their son or their brother or their boyfriend Seth Rich's family members if they care, they'll they'll eventually come forward. And I know that there's members of the MPD who just don't want to lose their jobs. But I've really um, told us some helpful information. Um, and the last thing that we reported on from the profiling project, a team of investigators who are looking to find Seth, Kitch- Seth Rich's killers, um, was one that there's evidence um, that's being removed from the internet pertaining to his his death, like um. His, his Facebook accounts have been deleted. His Reddit accounts have been deleted. All of his online social media accounts have been deleted. Alicia, which is like I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to ask you about those accounts because I've read 
uh, articles where they said that he would have accounts under different names, and one of the names was uh, something with pan- the word panda in it. I believe it was a few right. Twitter handles or a Reddit uh, thing. Uh, are you talking about those specifically or all of the above? All of them apparently are just getting removed, and recently, like within the last couple of months. Okay. That's according to the profiling project. I myself haven't tried to navigate through all of his online accounts. Um, and so a lot that, of that stuff's archived too. Um, right, if you can go to the Wayback Machine or something and possibly find it. I haven't done that yet. Um, so there's, there's also a lot of stuff to stay away from um, because there's a lot of people out there perhaps from the DNC who want us to look like fools for reporting on this case and us to look like conspiracy theorists and fall for the reports that they're putting out that are bogus, such as, um, I believe it was Gateway Pundit who um, basically put out a report saying that the the emails were um, hacked locally and someone, some hacker named Forensicator. Yep, I saw um, that. Right, we all saw that. I wouldn't buy into that. We spoke to an IT specialist. And he says that's not verifiable. Yeah, they were trying to make so. the case that the emails were not remotely hacked through right. back-channel computer terminal ports. Instead, it was done with a, a flash driver at the point of entry with the computer. And they were trying to make the case, and I'm not that at all tech-savvy with the IT stuff I to even much. understand that. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure who that guy is, the, the forensicator or whatever that name is, but I did read about that. And uh, there's an example, too. I just was reading about this before the show of what you, what, what can really happen. Uh, Rachel Maddow apparently ran with some fake NSA document the other day on her show for a 21-minute exclusive, only to have to come out and show that the document was faked intentionally for her show to run that. And that's one thing that I think is really smart for, for journalists like yourself and others is to make sure that they can verify um, these, and we have to, as you said, stay one uh, step above, you know, the Washington Post and New York Times and these anonymous sources, quoting anonymous sources, because that, that does get very sketchy, and anybody can really be an anonymous source. And yeah, uh, these exactly. people are I mean, we know who the person we're up. talking to is, but I could also just be making it up for all the, you know, for all America knows, mm-hmm. for all public knows, <laughs> right? Lisa, can can I ask a question? Uh, Because you're a journalist by profession. I'm an investigator by profession. As a journalist, um, if someone comes to me uh, and and says, I've got some information, uh, we'll say about Seth Rich, but you can't use my name. Here's the information. And really, but, but you can't use my name. And the information is such that you cannot verify that information without compromising your source, what do you do? You, you, you really can't use it then, right? I mean, I mean, in the, in the case I'm talking about, I mean, I guess we could quote an anonymous source, but in this situation, we have someone who's coming to us with information he got, and the person he got that information from doesn't want to doesn't want to come forward with his name either. Sure. So we'd be we'd go we we'd really be playing telephone here. We'd be quoting someone anonymously who's quoting someone anonymously. Okay. 
And, and so, if I, I mean, I, that's I, just retarded. Yeah, that's it, ridiculous. Exactly. That, that's like two and three uh, degrees away. And as an investigator, when someone comes to to me uh, and says, "I know you're an investigator," I know you're an investigator. I am speaking to you as a client. I'd like, you know, I'd like to be your client and gives me information. There's no way I could, I could speak on that information given our relationship. So that's different as a journalist. That's why I'm asking. So, yeah. you know, okay, okay. That's, that's interesting though. Yeah. Um, is there, I mean, we still, we, we don't want it. We don't want to have to use anonymous sources. It's just lame. Like, sure. every time we read something from the New York Times with another anonymous source about Russia, like, it's just enough. <laughs> one, one last question. I'm going to turn it back over to Joe. If, if the source was within MPD that had information that would help solve the case, would not withholding that information be a crime in and of itself? Just curious. I mean, perhaps. They have all of these reasons why they justify not releasing basic information that they they release in and they typically release in other homicide cases. They're not releasing in Seth Rich's case. The autopsy, the ballistics report, um, you know, the body cam that um, you know. I don't want to throw the alleged out there that I found out from these anonymous sources, but there's definitely just regarding Seth Rich, and every time we keep, every time we look and look and find more information, it has nothing to do. There's no proof that it was a botched robbery, and there's proof that it was a hit because of his ties at work. That's all that we're finding so far. That's yeah. it. I mean, and and we'll, like we'll said, just keep saying, reporting what we find out. And hopefully, people will, um, if they do have information, will come forward at some point in time and I do agree with you that time is on our side in this matter um, because they've already done everything they've can to, to suppress any alternative theories of this case only to pique the public's interest more and if there's I mean, any real information that comes out I believe most people will be paying attention to it I think one more thing to add to this is like if this were a, a Republican um, staff, RNC staffer who was allegedly killed by the RNC or by Donald Trump's campaign. The the media would have the power to keep this story on the front page for a long time, for months and months and months and months to perpetuate the alleged um, the allegations, right? But it's really hard to keep a story going for so long and the public's interest. Um, and the media wants to bury this story. Like we saw Trayvon Martin, we saw that go on for like two years. Mm-hmm. That's because the media has an interest in perpetuating um, the the Trayvon Martin anti-police narrative. But here they're trying to bury the story, so it's no surprise only 40 people showed up. Whether they did a got good job of promoting the vigil or not, we don't know. But really, I mean, I guess unless something bombshell and breaks in the next few months, there's a good chance this, this case is going to grow cold. Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, that's the the way things go. And, and with our, our news cycle, um, many people's attention spans do get much shorter. But at the same time, uh, this is one case where I do see a lot of people 
searching out information rather than waiting for it to, to cross their desk. And hopefully that, that continues. And again, I agree. If more information does come out, I think it will be uh, specifically paid a lot of attention. Well, they've managed to keep Russia on the front page for, what, I don't know, six months, nine months. (laughs) People are growing tired of it, but they're still bombarding us with more information about Russia, and um, which goes back to, you know, the whole things are kind of interlinked, right? If uh, they, John Podesta was just um, on Capitol Hill last week, I think it was, to um, testify about the Russia-Trump probe. Well, where were the Republicans asking him about, okay, Seth Rich or spirit cooking or those emails or Hillary Clinton's ties to Russia and uranium? I mean... (laughs) Yeah, um, it's a lot of double standards. and, And one thing people in the media have been talking about and feel... And kind of, we're seeing a little bit of it now, and maybe we can get into this. We didn't talk about this in the first segment. Is is that the more that they dig into this Russian narrative, the more they're being exposed for their own tricks, um, for their own dirty dealings in Russia, like you mentioned, the Uranium One, Hillary Clinton deal. And then today, uh, some interesting news came out about the the lawyer who allegedly met with Donald Trump Jr. and how she was granted access to. Um, to the country, and, and granted, uh, I forget what the title was. Explained. By the Obama administration. Yeah, and Loretta Lynch, the DOJ, uh, Loretta Lynch DOJ specifically, granted her some very uh, exclusive kind of, uh, what was it, a, a visa or access into the country for some trial she was working on. That was the, the cover. But she managed to stay in the country and, and get a meeting with, with Donald Trump Jr., um, the more we dig in, the more that the media pushes Russia, how much do you believe that we're going to see where this is um, being set up and orchestrated by the Obama administration and the DOJ and the different uh, systems of, or different federal agencies that worked under the Obama administration? I mean, the thing is, is that we've got, I think Newt Gingrich put it correctly earlier. He said, we've got, you know, the media and Congress and Senate, and they're all probing Russia. They're all probing Trump for his collusion with Russia. So it's basically like they're going after Trump for jaywalking. And um, <laughs> I forget his analogy, but they're going after Trump for jaywalking when the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton have basically done armed burglary or, you know, or something like that. They've just yeah. committed so much heinous crime. And what has Trump done? He's had meetings with so-and-so. I mean, are, are they also looking into the meetings he had with other heads of state, because I'm sure he had meetings with other heads of state as well, and that's just who cares. I mean, and one of the who, things in their their argument, you know, when they say meddling or they say collusion, even when you look at the definitions of those words, you can't even connect crimes, um, or even, I mean, those words are when you talk about collusion, when you think of what America tries to do to influence other elections and even nations across the world. Just in the last uh, Obama administration, the number of countries that were Wasn't overthrown he in, Paris with the- in the Arab Spring and in the influencing <laughs> of the Israel elections um, against Netanyahu, um, you know, you talk about meddling in collusion. You know, that evidence is there. But when when we're talking about Trump, um, there there's nothing specific. They can throw around these terms collusion. The hacking was one thing, but they had to back off that. 
because we learned that the only hacking that was done was by the DHS into, I, think, I believe it was six states, into their you know election systems, but nothing was... Here's the thing. Your question is, are we going to see this backfire against Democrats yeah. and Obama? Well, let's look at all the stuff that the Democrats have gotten away with and Obama have gotten away with in the last few years, right? They got away with... Um, using the IRS to target conservative groups. Just got away with it. John Koskin is still the head of the IRS right now. We got away with, I believe, tapping the Associated Press. And remember, they, they were spying on um, that Fox News reporter. Um, yeah, I, I know who you're talking about. I think about. his name right now. You got James Rosen. You got Risen as James well. James Rosen, right. Right. Um, they got away with, with, remember the whole unmasking thing with Susan Rice just two months ago? Whatever happened to that? A whole week ago, it's a bombshell, all this unmasking stuff. We all just try to learn what unmasking means, and, and anyways, and then that's old news. It's forgotten about. And there's so many more things, right? And of course, all the Hillary Clinton's emails and the, her corruption with the Clinton Global Initiative. They, they are masterful in getting away. Whatever yeah. it is they need to get away with, but they'll hold Scooter Libby, they'll put him in jail for outing, uh, you know, a CIA um, informative. It's just basically, I don't know what needs to change, but they they get away with with murder, and Trump's not getting away with jaywalking. Right. <laughs> and I mean, literally murder. I believe part of it is their ability to work with the press and to, you know, either create stories or sensationalize stories to take attention away, which should never really happen because people should understand or should be able to see what's important and continue to to press on those. Because if you think about it, um, regardless of what alternative site or even mainstream, uh, well, let's forget about the mainstream uh, news for now, just the alternative world, the people really dictate what's important by the number of clicks and and by the attention they they pay to different stories, and and that's part of it. And in an atmosphere like that, um, everybody seems to be looking for the you know the next big thing uh, or the next big scoop. And it, I don't see a lot of you know I do see a lot of it on our on the on the on the right side where we see stories that are continued to be dug into you know day after day, week after week. The Seth Rich one is a good example. The Susan Rice one is, an, is another good example. But the, in the two there, the, the Susan Rice story has disappeared, and it hasn't gotten much coverage after it has disappeared, even though I mean, basically even, she was found to be in the wrong and breaking the law. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it's also, you know, we found that the Democrat Party in the last election, through their emails that were leaked, have ties to Marina Abramovic, right? But then again, so do all these people in Hollywood. And who's Marina Abram- Abramovic? She is the Satanist cult leader, basically. And just Google her. You'll see her spirit cooking, which mm-hmm. John Podesta was working with her doing. And I always mention the spirit cooking thing because it's just insane that there's no follow-up on it. And, and it gets back to the point is not only do Democrats run the media, but they control our culture, really. They control the culture and narrative. Like, if my if if your two year old daughter is just in front of the television and doesn't watch any news until ever and goes to school, chances are she's going to be he or she's going to be a liberal, and they're gonna verbatim espouse liberal talking points emphatically. 
because they monopolize our culture, and that's why they get away with murder, and that's why they get away with cooking. And I guarantee most of America is not Satanist, are not Satanist, but Lady Gaga is openly a Satanist. Hillary Clinton's campaigning with her six months ago, openly mm-hmm. before the election, and nobody cares because the the veil is over everyone's eyes. And that's a good way to put it. Um, much of America doesn't dig deep into either by a lack of interest or or apathy to what's going on. They don't dig deep into or even pay attention to a lot of what goes on. It's most. It's it's wrong at this point in time to say that it's most. I think that there is there they were also at the same time in in an age of um, I guess enlightenment where people have more access to information than ever before, mm-hmm. and there's people who are more informed than ever before. Um, about the inner workings of our power structures and our democratic party, you know, but that, that's why we're kind of at a, a, a crossroads where a civil war, of a potential civil war, at least might not be us out in the streets fighting with guns and killing each other, but a cold civil war, right? The cold war never ended. Yeah. Well, it's a, in the very least, uh, as my dad laid out in the first segment, an ideological war that is ongoing and that seems to be uh, continuing to widen the political divide in this country. And and you're right that the um, the liberals and the and the left are easily able to maintain narratives and 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 they create the news cycle to a great degree of what's on the mainstream news. And um, if you don't. You know, as you said, if you just put somebody in front of the TV or a kid in front of the TV and, and let them go along life in their own way, most people do end up, you know, just repeating those same mantras without ever, you know, getting the critical thinking aspect of it and, and understanding for themselves why they even believe what they believe. But we're getting off into left field here, Alicia. We only have a few minutes left. Anything else that you did this week that you wrote about this week? Um, did you mention something about Planned Parenthood? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think earlier this week or... Oregon is passing a bill, it's pending to go to the Senate, that would provide abortions for everyone, including illegal aliens. And um, I spoke with Martin Luther King's Martha, Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece, Alveda King, about this subject, and she basically lays all lays it all out how the 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 eugenic history of abortion and Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger. And essentially, King argues that the Democrat Party and anyone who are proponents of their, uh, of this easily accessed abortions um, are basically racist, and they want to minimize that that population. Um, and this argument has been laid out a lots of times by conservatives. Yeah. And, and, and it's because if you just do the research, you're like, well, uh, it makes sense. If you go to any urban place in America, you will run into lots of Planned Parenthoods on all over the place, every few blocks. And you don't see that in more upscale neighborhoods. Well, um, even back to the roots of, of uh, as you said, uh, Margaret Sanger, they talked about eugenics being a fundamental principle of abortion in in their their foundation of this and that was a huge part and she's she i mean there's quotes of her 
saying those exact words, you know, this is a form of eugenics and, you know, we're going to target the, the African-American race and all these things. I mean, this these were their arguments they made when they established abortion and then these Planned Parenthoods. So to, to try to move away from that argument on their side um, is hypocritical. But it, it's amazing how it's been twisted in the in the public perception. Well, yeah, now you're, according to the default narrative that is the liberal agenda, now you are racist if you don't want them to have easy access to abortions and you're sexist and you're against women. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I mean, look at the repercussions of abortion, too, of getting abortions. Um, I guess, as Alveda King explained, um, it's basically you have a higher chance of getting cancer, you're prone to getting depressed after having abortions, especially multiple abortions. And really just common sense tells you that shouldn't be any any means of birth control. I mean Yeah, we've had uh shows personal with, responsibility. Right? Absolutely. And, we've had shows with uh, abortion survivors, with ladies who've had abortions, and uh the stories are absolutely um terrible to listen to the, the the emotional parts and things that that these people went through alicia powell is our guest uh we are up against the end of the interview thank you so much for joining us alicia uh thank you for great segment me. look forward to having you on again i hope you feel better right. alicia i shall feel better by tomorrow well we hope so i got work to do <laughs> that's right alicia powell she's a journalist and author at worldnetdaily.com you can follow her on twitter we'll be right back after this don't go anywhere have a good night thanks alicia Green Innovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Green Innovative. What Green Innovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right? You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a bang, you're charging your recharge batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable, it's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces, it's durable, it's EMP proof, and it's environmentally friendly, yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid when other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, and that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas for fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad friends much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an ammo can. 
For investors, timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. Consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com, PreciousTimberProfits.com. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of Hagman Report. HagmanReport.com is our website. Peter Lis- or, uh, uh, Peter Berichoka is our guest. His, he's got an article up on HagmanReport.com today. Check it out. Um, just a talented writer. He writes for American Thinker. And, and I want to just say thank you uh, and hello to Thomas Lifson, the, uh, the uh, head of American Thinker. Uh, what a great website. And folks, for our articles and blog posts by Peter Barry Chowka, go to American Thinker there. Uh, but again, a big thank you to Thomas Lifson, the editor there. And Peter Berry Choka is, is one of my favorite people. Uh, he writes about a number of things, single payer healthcare. He writes about, uh, healthcare in general. He writes about the media. And let's start there. First of all, Peter, it's been, it's been, I think, uh, three weeks and a day since you were last on our program. Welcome back. Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much. Now, if we can start out, because we, we kind of left off, I think the, the last time that you were on, we were talking about the media. We were talking about uh, the various media conglomerates, including and especially Fox News, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, all of that stuff. Um, and you've written about it subsequent to our uh, your appearance. Where are we at with uh, Fox News and what's going on there uh, that we should know about? Well, when we last connected three weeks ago, uh, I had written a number of articles about the cable news wars, as they're now being called now, the competition between or among CNN, MSNBC, and the Fox News Channel. And uh, there was a period of uh, a dislocation there after some firings and the death of Roger Ailes, who was fired almost a year before his death. And the ratings seemed up for grabs, and they still are, although they've settled down a bit. Uh, MSNBC, the far-left cable news channel, has certainly risen a lot. And, in fact, in the most recent ratings that came out, MSNBC has grown the most in terms of new viewers and also viewers in the preferred demographic, viewers aged 25 to 54 who are the preferred viewers for some reason for advertising purposes. Fox News has also grown slightly, and CNN, uh, although it's grown slightly, is now coming in a distant third because of the pathetic nature 
of its uh, programming. And not to say that MSNBC is much better, but MSNBC has done very well at targeting that uber left-wing niche. And Rachel Maddow, the star of MSNBC on at 9 p.m. Eastern, now has the highest uh, rated program on the free cable news channels on most nights. But Fox is still doing pretty well in total viewers and in the demographic. And it's a little like reading the tea leaves, though. All of the news channels put out news releases analyzing the Nielsen ratings, which measure the viewership, and they can all spin it. And uh, you really have to look into these ratings, look at the raw data, and try to figure it out for yourself, and really who has time for that. So I take a quick look at it. I notice that Sean Hannity, for example, who is doing uh, one of the two best programs on Fox News, Sean and Tucker Carlson. Sean's on at 10 Eastern. Carlson is on at 8. And, of course, Sean Hannity is pretty much the most popular and successful conservative talk show host in the history of the United States. Rush Limbaugh may be slightly ahead of him in terms of radio audience, but there's nobody who's close to him in terms of TV audience on the right. And Sean does both, three hours a day of radio, an hour a day of TV on Fox News. And when you put them together, he's basically number one. And he's doing some fantastic shows lately, uh, inviting guests almost every night, including uh, attorney Greg Jarrett, who also works for Fox News, who's been doing independent reporting on the fake news and the uh, purported Russia collusion scandal and deconstructing that, the Mueller investigation. Uh, Sean is also often joined by Jay Sekulow, the attorney who's now working with the Trump administration. And uh, another frequent guest is Sarah Carter, who's gotten tremendous exposure on Hannity's show in recent weeks, who writes for Circa News. And she is another excellent example of an up-and-coming investigative journalist who may turn out to be one of the best ones that the country has ever produced. So Hannity is must-see viewing for me as is Tucker Carlson to an extent. And uh, actually, last Friday, Tucker had on uh, Stephen Cohen, Professor Stephen Cohen, as a guest, the expert on Russia and the Soviet Union, Princeton, New York University, 78 years old. His wife is uh, Katrina Vandenhuvel, who's the editor of The Nation, a very far-left publication. And Stephen Cohen is pretty far-left, too. But he's pretty much come out... uh, uh, demystifying this Russia collusion schedule in es- essentially saying it's a, it's a bunch of BS. But he's saying it from a vantage point of one of the top Russia scholars in the United States today. And after the show, and I wrote an article on that program, which was published on Saturday, I exchanged some emails with uh, Dr. Cohen, and he seems like a very nice man. He said he would agree to be interviewed uh, by me American thinker when he gets back from a, a foreign trip at the end of this month. But, you know, I thought, what a nice guy. He, he He's really telling the truth as he sees it. He's not throwing his lot in with these lunatics on the left who are just bashing Trump and pushing this ridiculous Russia collusion story. So uh, this is what Fox News is still capable of. They are not perfect. They've made some mistakes. I'm sure they'll make them in the future. And we don't know what the future holds because of uh, One of my articles was about the Murdoch boys. Uh, Those are the two sons of Rupert Murdoch. Rupert is now 86. He's the mogul behind Fox News and a transnational uh, entertainment empire, which has too many facets to even begin to list. But 
he's winding down and the sons are winding up. They're both in their 40s. They're liberal. Their wives are liberal. And uh, they're distracted, however, from the moment. My source, my high-level source at Fox News has told me that for the moment, things are stable at Fox News. We're not seeing Hannity's show as imminently threatened with cancellation or firing as it might have seemed about a month ago because not only he's having excellent ratings, he's the linchpin of the primetime schedule, but the Murdoch boys are preoccupied with what's going on in Great Britain. The Fox uh, empire is trying to get control of Sky TV, a large cable channel in the UK and in some European countries. Fox owns a percentage of it. They want the whole thing. This has to be approved by the bureaucrats in England. They are not really approving it. They're demanding a longer investigation period. And so the Murdoch boys are, are caught up in all of that, and they're, they don't have time to mess around with the Fox News schedule here for the moment. But we shall see what happens in the future. And uh, But just let me wrap this up with a bow, this topic, by saying this. Uh, one of the times we spoke in the past, I forget if it was my first or my second appearance on the Hagman Report, I mentioned that uh, the conclusion I had come to in delving so deeply into the cable news wars and the cable channels and Fox in particular is that I realized that for me, the, the mainstream media, even Fox News, which has been a friend to fair and balanced reporting and conservative reporting on the whole for the last 21 years, uh, even I, I don't go to them even anymore for as a primary source. I probably gave up on that almost without realizing it uh a few years back, just as I gave up on CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the rest about a decade ago. And, and now my primary sources are the Internet and also not only the, the written word on the Internet, but podcasting, live stream shows, programs like the Hagman Report. Not that there's another program like the Hagman Report, but you know what I mean. Uh, the, the Internet is now my primary source and Fox and everything else in the mainstream is becoming a secondary or ancillary source. And I think that's how it's got to be. That's how it will be for those of us who are following the news as either uh, citizens who see an investment in our futures in this or professionally we're following it. And uh, let's face it, the information and more often the truth, more often than not, is, is online. It's to be found online. And that's a sea change. Yeah. That's a paradigm shift. Um, Peter, one bit of information. I'm going to surprise you with this. Uh, we didn't speak before the interview, and I'm just going to toss this out there. One bit of information. You mentioned Fox News, and Sean Hannity, to me, I, I do believe he's got the best program out there when it comes to dispelling the myth, the conspiracy, uh, crackpotted lunatic stuff about Russia, the illusion of collusion, I, I suppose. Uh, so he, he is a target in many ways. But um, according to, to, to one source who I referenced uh, off air to you, stated very much the same about it being quiet there, uh, preoccupied was not a word that was used but certainly suggested, but the main point was uh, was it may not look the same come the fall as it does today. And um, kind of like make hay while the sun the sun shines. And uh, because you just don't know, come the fall, 
the lineup might change because the objective is to kind of move directions, um, move the direction a little bit, a lot more, I should say, to the left and liberal. Just, just want to kind of toss that out there for whatever it might be worth. And, uh, you know, anonymous or unnamed sources are pretty much worth sometimes just that, just, you know, nothing. Well, I think it's of tremendous value, Doug, what you've just reported. And you and I have exchanged information on that background level before via your source. And it's, it's held up according to my source. And, um, I was even able to quote your source anonymously in one of my articles for American Thinker. And that got the attention of uh, one or more people at Fox News, one of whom has become my high-level source and who has said that that information was right on the money. And I think even as an informed viewer of Fox News, one can notice now that there's an incremental, very gradual, subtle, and sometimes not so subtle shift to the left. Now, it hasn't obviously affected some of the primetime programming yet, which consists of uh, Martha McCallum at 7 p.m., Tucker Carlson at 8 p.m., that awful show The Five at 9 p.m., and attend Sean Hannity. Uh, those shows are pretty much intact at the moment, and I think the hands are off. In fact, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal two or three days ago about Fox News. And of course, that has to be taken with a grain of salt because it's owned, the journal is owned by the same company as owns Fox News, although they insist that they're editorially um, independent of Fox ownership. But in any case, the, the article quoted Tucker Carlson as uh, after he had a lunch in Los Angeles with Lachlan Murdoch, one of the Murdoch boys, one of the sons. Tucker said that uh, Nobody's told him what to do or what to say on his program for the moment, so all is well. But during much of the rest of the day, we see this creeping uh, integration of more hardcore left-wing uh, commentators, contributors, and the contributors, if they're identified as a Fox News contributor, that means they're being paid by Fox News, often six figures a year. This would include people like Jessica Tarloff, um, yeah, I mean, a whole range of people, their names aren't coming to mind right now. But uh, I, I'm seeing more of them. I'm seeing them on more programs. For example, if you go to Jessica Tarloff's Twitter, you know, typically these people who appear on Fox News as guests or, or contributors will tweet every time they're about to do a show. Oh, I'm in the green room. I'll be on in five minutes or whatever. So none of us can watch 24 hours a day. So occasionally I'll check her and some of the other contributors' Twitter feeds, check it out. And I see that they're appearing on Fox News, on Fox Business, on Fox Radio, multiple times a day, these hardcore leftists. And they're taking up uh, oxygen. They're taking up time that otherwise would be given to either uh, decent liberals like Professor Cohen or Patrick Cadell, who I haven't seen since November on Fox News, former uh, co-host of the Political Insider show, which has also disappeared, or Doug Schoen or Michael uh, Murphy, I believe, uh, African-American activist from New York who's occasionally on Sean Hannity's show, who's a liberal but who speaks like an old-style liberal. He speaks common sense and not just stupid communist talking points like most of the rest do. 
So we have to pay close attention and hope that uh, hope that they'll keep on with something decent. And if not, we're just going to have to try to hold their feet to the fire through uh, publishing articles, through uh, whatever it takes. You know, pressure on advertisers. But at least Sean Hannity, for his part, will still have his three-hour-day radio show uh, for which he's paid handsomely, and I think his contract runs there for quite some time. And his radio show is the radio equivalent of his television program. I've been monitoring it most days recently as part of my multitasking effort here. And he does kind of a longer form on the radio of what he does on his TV show that night. Of course, he has about 38 minutes on TV when you subtract the commercials, and he has about two hours on the radio when you subtract the commercials. By the way, I came across an interesting statistic, excuse me for bumping the camera. I uh, I found out that... No worries. Hopefully I'm still in focus. Uh, On the uh, Fox News prime time, they sell uh, commercial time for $14,100 per 30-second ad. And there are are at least 40 30-second ads in an hour of Fox News. Not all of the national, some are local. But they're raking in uh, major six figures for every hour of their primetime programming. So I thought that might be an interesting uh, statistic for you to keep in mind as as you are going forward with... uh, expanding your operation, which, by the way, I read just today the news that you're about to expand a week from this coming Monday to an additional two hours per day, an hour in the morning, Doug, with you, and then an hour at lunchtime with Joe and John Robertson, and I'm so excited to hear that news, and uh, I can't wait for the launch of your additional five hours, or your, your additional two hours, making a total of five, and as I was telling John on the phone this afternoon, um You've got five down and 19 to go. <laughs> you, you know, there, there's so much to cover, and there's uh, there, there's so much that doesn't get reported during our uh, evening program that we hope to fill in some of the blanks. And, and, and you know what, Peter? It's uh, uh, although we personally, I feel I might not be good at what I, you know, I, I'm I'm not a good broadcaster. I'm certainly not a professional broadcaster. At least we can get more of the truth out, um, you know, in, in, in various platforms. So we're, we're excited about this, and I want to thank uh, all of the people who support us because we are a listener-driven, uh, listener-supported show primarily, and uh, people are hungry for the truth. The, the, your writings, the, the information you put out is so important for people to really I mean, people are hungry for for the information that, that that we provide, but you provide as well. So, thank you, by the well, way. Well, what I'm really appreciating, Doug and Joe, with your forum and with American Thinker, is that I can touch on uh, some of my long history in this. I mean, we're living in kind of a historical times. There, across the board in the mainstream, there's less and less interest in history. Of course, it's no longer taught for the most part, in schools or even at the university level. Uh, It's hardly ever referenced in journalism, in mainstream media journalism today. It's like everything happened today and nothing happened yesterday, and we don't even want to reference what happened yesterday or before or, God forbid, in past decades. So, you know, I've been around for a long time. I've still got a, a clear memory, thank God, and I've held on to a lot of 
archival material from along the way. And uh, I, I do like to try to connect the dots over the period that I've been alive and paying attention and active so that we can see really there's nothing new under the sun. Everything over a lot of what we see today is the same old, same old. And if we refuse or are not open to learning from history, we are going to be uh, cursed with repeating it big time. I mean, I heard you, you know, your opening monologue today, which I heard was uh, absolutely riveting. And uh, I, I especially appreciated your reference about uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy, tail gunner Joe. I have a, a, a beautiful photograph of him that I'm going to have to email you, which I got out of a, a remaindered book that I paid 50 cents for by Haynes Johnson. He was attacking Joe McCarthy, but there was a fantastic picture of Joe McCarthy in there that just to look at it, you could see, you know, it's the picture is worth a thousand words. So I'll be sure that you, you wow. get a copy of that. But, Thank you. But, uh, he was right. He was right. I think Ann Coulter has also written about, uh, Senator Joe McCarthy. But she I also, I also really appreciated your putting what we are going through today in the context of a, a war. A civil war, a real war. Because I was thinking about that a bit earlier, thinking that uh, we are now seeing a war. Well, what one front of that war, one hot front, is the war that's being fought in the mainstream media or in the media in general, the mainstream and then the alternative media. We now have a war between truth and fake news, between truth and fiction, between truth Accuracy and lies. In my experience, and I would, I would posit or argue that in the experience of the modern world, we have never seen anything like what we are experiencing right now in this war in the media. Uh, I mean, of course, in, in fascistic countries, totalitarian countries in the past, whether it was Soviet Russia, Hitler's Germany, uh, North Korea today, the news media has been controlled and has been propaganda 101. But we are supposed to be different. We have a legacy of democracy, of freedom of the press, of uh, fighting it out on the battlefield of the media. And today, uh, that the battle in the mainstream media has pretty much been won by the forces of darkness, by the forces of collectivism, socialism, and communism, as you were putting it out in your monologue today. Well, you, you and, know, if I can just interject something here with respect to the media and the memes, as they call them today, one thing I noticed during the McCarthy era, uh, the car, the, 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 um, placement or the, uh, the relevance of cartoons as made famous by Herbert Block, Herb Block, uh, Herb Block. You know, yeah. And, and I see the same thing taking place today, um, except more refined on the internet, of course, uh, which parallels the McCarthy era, um, but again, the refinement is much greater because the venue, that being the internet, is much more, um, well, it's constant, you know. So anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. By the way, Herblock was also instrumental. He was still working at the Washington Post in the early 1970s, and his cartoons actually starting well before Watergate, uh, satirizing and mocking Nixon in a, a satirical cartoon way were very uh, significant in dragging Nixon's reputation down so that he was ripe for uh, impeachment 
calls following the so-called Watergate scandal. So tremendously influential was her block through the 1970s. Indeed. Very interesting and very prescient. And that's why, folks, that's why I love our conversations with Peter Barry Chowka. Uh, uh, just an amazing writer, very prolific writer. Uh, is uh, of course he's uh, one of his uh, uh, several of, of his uh, columns can be found on HagmanReport.com. His home, of course, is a, an American thinker, and want to say give a shout out to Thomas Lifson, the um, head uh, lead editor, American thinker. But uh, but Peter, your 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 writings are just so. Right on the money and your analyses, your measured approach to things, is just amazing. Again, well, thank you, Doug, and I, I, I want to say as well on this special day, July thirteenth, twenty seventeen, I am proud to have had my first article that was exclusively prepared for the Hagman Report published today on the Hagman Report, and I'm uh, extremely comfortable and thrilled with that new venue, and I will be following up today's article with uh, several more parts on the same subject and hopefully be contributing on a regular basis original reporting from now on to the Hagman Report. And I've always felt it's important to me to have venues that I feel good about and and like the people behind them and like the output of the product. And uh, I couldn't have a higher appreciation or regard for what you are doing, not only with your daily broadcasts, but with the Hagman Report website, which is coming along quite nicely, and I'm I'm really happy to be part of it now. Thank you, thank you so much, and we are so excited. And folks, this is uh, we, we we are so pleased to bring you uh, such luminary, proficient, prolific writers. Uh, again, Peter Barry Chowka is our guest, and uh, so knowledgeable about a number of topics. Uh, and, and so many different uh, areas to get into, Joe. We're getting close to the bottom of the hour break, but I want to toss it to you. Well, yeah, and folks, I would urge you to go to HagmanReport.com and read uh, Peter Chalka's article, Single-Payer Single payer Healthcare Will Destroy Your Freedom and Kill You. And, uh, you know, there's a, an interesting case going on over in the U.K. Uh, that we could get into in the, in the next segment that shows what, you know... Uh, I guess people would call death panels, and this type of, of care could bring uh, to our society, and it's a pretty horrific story. But this article lays out the, the history of, of medicine, alternative medicine, health care to the ACA, to the single payer, basically, uh, um, you know, the communist-style uh, government-controlled system that it looks like we are trying to move into, and the damages and the dangers that this brings along, and, it, and it's uh, much more encompassing than people will think when you think about what they were able to do with the health care changes that they did through the ACA through Obamacare, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, from from before Obamacare to Obamacare when you were being taxed, if you didn't have it, uh, and the other impositions and the raising of rates and, and everything else, what will they do when they gain total control, when the government gains total control of health care? We've already seen a lot of the, the plans released, and, and we can get into this on the other side with Peter Barry Chowka, who is our guest uh, for the rest of this hour. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We'll be right back.
Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. There shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Folks, I'm going to direct your attention to masterpreps.com, masterpreps.com. Wow. Masterpreps.com, the sponsor of our show, masterpreps.com. That's masterpreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you could possibly want from cooking utensils, cooking frying pans. I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Eric's a, It's insane. I mean, wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman and Hagman Report family, masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? Hi, I'm Grace Gonzalez from Train Personal Woods. We are an American family-owned company founded and built on skills and knowledge gained from responding to each major disasters in the U.S. and around the world. We found that most people don't have enough food and water to survive, let alone any medicinals to save their life. We are offering 25% off our must-have American Heritage Remedies Kit. It contains 12 homeopathic remedies, a booklet that goes over everything in your kit, and our brand new book, Major Disasters Lessons Learned. Just enter coupon code HAGMAN. In life or a disaster, you must be able to take care of yourself. You may not be a medical doctor, and your grandmother and your great-grandmother probably weren't either. But they still knew how to minister to their family's health issues, and so can you. Check out our American Heritage Journey Kit at www.changelessandwoods.com. Your life may depend on it. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Freedom and and kill you is the title, and it's a uh, the first article that Peter wrote exclusively for HagmanReport.com. He's a big writer of of the that's of, oh yeah, he got a, a book out on on cancer, and we'll get back to that in just a minute. I want to bring you a quick word from Solark. Uh, this is one of our sponsors. Most overlooked preparations are water and energy. With the real threat of cybersecurity and EMP weapons, you may want to consider the Solark. It's the only EMP-hardened battery-based solar system available to the public today. The folks at Portable Solar 
have designed this product with EMP hardening and expandability in mind. This is a veteran-owned Christian company, and they stand by their product. You can watch their EMP testing videos on their YouTube channel or by going to their website, www.soularc.us. Most people don't realize how much power they need to run essential items like a fridge, freezer, lights, DC, etc. Portable solar engineers help you decide what type of backup power you should consider and how to pick a good system, even if it's not their product. They do free consultations, and there is a lot of educational material at soularc.us. You can also give them a call at 972-575-8875 or go to soularc.us. All right, back to our guest, Peter Chowka. Uh, he's a, a journalist and author for American Thinker, and it's great to have you on video, Peter. Uh, I want to kind of take a break of uh, the news and talk about the uh, the animals that you got uh, sitting right behind you. Right, they're kind of my uh, spiritual guides, I guess you might say. Uh, behind me in this direction is uh, a photograph of Ekaterina, who was a, a Russian blue cat, passed away in 2009, just under age 10. And uh, I've had cats most of my adult life. I, I really like cats, which is not to put down dogs either, but uh, cats have worked out for my lifestyle. And the Ekaterina was a really exceptional example of the Russian blue breed, which happens to be my favorite breed of cat, although the two cats who are in the household now, the two live cats, are rescue cats, although they're both gray and they kind of look like Russian blues. I was hoping one of them might make a cameo appearance tonight, but uh, he's sound asleep at the moment, so I, I don't think he can be bothered. But anyone who is interested in checking out more of Ekaterina can go to RussianBlue.com, which is one of the domains that I registered in the 1990s. It's dedicated to the Russian blue cat, RussianBlue.com. And it's a small site, but it does have several photographs of Ekaterina and some links. Next to Ekaterina is a little plush toy, which is um, uh, very cute, so I couldn't resist uh, buying it at the local supermarket. And it's of a, a bush baby, which is a small nocturnal primate native to Africa, I guess its, its real name is the uh, Galagos, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and has very large eyes, which I guess are, are there because of its uh, nocturnal uh, activities. It moves around at night, so it needs the large eye-gathering eyes. But I did want to mention, too, I've been um, in touch quite a bit recently with John uh, Robertson, of course, and... Uh, uh, as we talk about animals, and I think about uh, your studio dog, Lady, who I've heard you mention so many times, and I know that you guys are animal lovers, and, and John is certainly a big-time animal level lover. And uh, I feel so bad for him that he has had to uh, report that his one of his two cats uh, has been missing for the last week or two, and he's spent endless hours searching for this cat. He told me the complete story today of how the cat went missing, and uh, I thought that with your large audience, both on video and audio, that we could all, as I've been doing, help to direct our prayers to John and to his cat, hoping his cat stays well, and that the two of them are reunited as soon as possible, especially with John uh, having to make a move in the fairly, very near future to join you in person on the East Coast. And uh, also, if you go to John's Twitter account, John Robertson, he has a, a photograph and uh, a PayPal linked to the work that he's having to do 
to put out flyers. Uh, I think he's printed about 600 or more, and you know how expensive ink is. <laughs> so anyone yeah. who can help out there can connect with John via his Twitter and perhaps give him a little assistance there. And uh, just to hear him talk about his cat and his other cat, Lenny, who remains at home with him, you know, it just breaks your heart when someone cat, someone's cat goes missing, it, just as when, when someone loses an animal companion. It really is heartbreaking, and uh, I've lost a number of them over the years and actually did a, a fair amount of research on what it means when you lose an animal companion, and it's been validated in the scientific and medical literature that the heartbreak, the sense of loss, can actually be greater for a person when he or she loses a, a treasured animal companion than when he or she loses a, a, a human relative. And it's not as weird as it sounds, and we don't have time to go into it now, but there's quite a literature about it, and it's very interesting food for thought, kind of validating the importance that animals have in our lives. And I, I joke, and it's not totally a joke either, that the older I get, the more I prefer the company of animals than I do to most people. Oh, so. I, I'm right there with you. Uh, me too. Uh, Lady and I have endless conversations. And, um, well, it's more of a monologue as opposed to a dialogue, but... Uh, I, I understand. I, I get that. And, and uh, animals to me are a gift from God. Uh, cats, dogs, regardless, they're a gift from God. I, I have to say this, and then we can move on. Uh, out of all the articles I've written, I wrote an article when my uh, uh, Australian shepherd passed away, Holly, goodbye to my best friend. And out of all the articles I've written, that article was the most passed around was the most popular article I've ever written. It appeared mm-hmm. in numerous publications, the animal publications. So that just tells you, I guess, that's not to say, you know, yay me. It's to say, boy, animals do play an important part in our lives, you know, as, as our as our buddies, as our friends. So, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, you know, when, when one of our cats passed away in uh, 1998, it was our first Russian blue uh, I was so distraught that I actually created several memorial websites uh, in the memory of this cat uh, and, and registered a domain in her name as well, and several of those sites are still up. But it got me in touch with a number of other uh, pet owners, or I can't even use that word pet owner, but for lack of a better term, and uh, we... We compared notes on the, the sense of loss and helped to work through it. So it's the only time I've ever used the internet for that kind of reaching out and networking for an emotional purpose. And it, it was really helpful over the period, actually, of several months. It took me to really get over that, the loss of that cat. She was so special and so dedicated and as we were dedicated to her. And that tells a lot to me. That tells a lot about your heart. Um, I'm, I'm just saying, and, and it, 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 well, I'll just leave it at that because I, I'm going to start uh, getting emotional here because I just, uh, you know, it's, again, they're, they're a gift from God. Although I will say this, Peter, given the fact that that's Russian blue, um, we're probably going to have to pass your name along to uh, Mueller. You know, there might be an issue here of collusion. Well, you know, several of my uh, of my URLs that I'm using now for articles are hosted at uh, 
a free host that has Russian blue in the URL at the front end, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> is that going to get me on a list? Uh, we'll see. Well, you know, it's... In this in this environment, who knows? But uh, oh, it's something. Well, no. I even, I even just to, just to wrap this up with a bow. I actually had a website in the late 1990s that was hosted in Russia. I got in touch with an English-speaking webmaster in Russia, the Russian Federation, and I said, "Would you give me some free web space to do the first ever English-language website in Russia?" on behalf of the Russian blue cat. And the breed actually does uh, trace back its origins to Russia. And he agreed, and he spoke English. And so for a couple of years, I had uh, the only, and well, the first and for a while, the only English-language website in Russia for the Russian blue cat. So that's probably worthy of getting me on a list, wouldn't you say? Maybe. Uh, in this day and age, you never know. <laughs> I love it. I'm guilty. I play guilty. <laughs> well, Peter, where do you come from here? We can um, get into your to your article. The singer pair healthcare will yes. destroy your freedom ah, and yeah. kill you. Well, folks, you got to read that article, uh, Joe. And it's okay. just the first. It's the first of several. Well, if you can wow. lay it lay it out for us a little bit, um, okay. frame it up for us on on the move from where we were before the Obama presidency, before the ACA, to what we're looking at with the uh, single payer healthcare. Right. Well, the uh, the forces of behind socialized medicine have been at work for about a century. Uh, to centralize medicine in a control statist grid has been the dream of collectivists, the Soviet Union, communists since day one. And, of course, there was single-payer communist medicine in the Soviet Union and uh, in Cuba, in Venezuela and now in most of the countries of the world. Really, the United States, uh, to my knowledge, is the last one that's left with anything approaching uh, freedom of choice and freedom in medicine. Even so, our medical system today has evolved to the point where 64% of medical procedures in this country, the medical bill, are paid for by the federal government. And it is the largest business, $3.2 trillion annually, is the bill for health care in the United States, and the government is paying almost two-thirds of it. That dwarfs the military-industrial complex, which is about $600 million. So Medicine, Inc. is five times plus bigger than uh, the military-industrial complex. And as I think you noted earlier, Doug, and I mentioned it in my article, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex in, in his farewell address in 1961, what we need today is a leading politician to warn us about the medical industrial complex. Now, uh, Ron Paul and Rand Paul have come somewhat close, but they are lone voices out there uh, trying to uh, speak some truth into this ridiculous process. But right now we've got one foot in the water of socialism and one in this government-controlled what's left of the free market. Of course, under Barack Hussein Obama and his Obamacare, which uh, passed the House and the Senate on a veto-proof vote, uh, all Democrats voting for it in March of 2009, that really helped to advance the cause of socialized medicine. And Some of us think that it was designed to fail, which it now is, of course, failing, so that the only, so that we'd be softened up 
for the next uh, step, which is full-blown single-payer socialized medicine. And we now see that the leading uh, potential contenders for the next Democratic presidential nomination, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, uh, you name them, they're all coming out in favor of single-payer, as is the leadership of the Democrat Party in the Congress and at the grassroots. So God forbid if we get uh, a Democrat president and or a Democrat-controlled Senate or House, chances are we're going to get single-payer socialized medicine. And what does this mean for us? Well, when I chose the title for my article, uh, I, I, I hope that the title would say it all, and it does. Single-payer health care will destroy your freedom and it will kill you. And there's no exaggeration in that title. All we have to do is look at what's happening in the United Kingdom and Great Britain as we speak. There's an 11-year-old baby there named Charlie Gard, G-A-R-D. And this has become an international story. You can read about it online and watch videos. Uh, Charlie Gard was unfortunately born with a rare genetic disorder called mitochondrial depletion syndrome. And what this supposedly means is that uh, he has brain damage and uh, his brain and his muscles are prevented from developing. Now, this diagnosis and the prognosis, which is hopeless, have been made by the medical establishment in Britain, which has a vested interest in, in looking, in defining cases as hopeless because they don't want to pay to treat them. Because under socialized single-payer medicine, there is, of course, rationing. There's only so much money that can go around. Private insurance is outlawed. Uh, supposedly paying for your own care is outlawed unless you're very rich and part of the elite. And then, of course, you can always get the best care. So the unfortunate parents of this little baby are, are not only prevented from getting any kind of potentially uh, helpful therapy that might exist, and by the way, in Britain, it probably doesn't exist because the other thing that socialized single-payer uh, communist medicine does is it puts the clamp on innovation and on freedom of thought and freedom of choice. So it not only curtails the choice that a patient or a citizen has and what he or she can use to prevent illness or treat it, but it also... Uh, puts the kibosh on any researchers who want to do anything creative because there's no incentive to it in a communist system, which is what England and Canada and Cuba and the rest have, and we don't quite yet. So the innovation exists in the United States, and there is a uh, an experimental therapy here. The parents are trying to get their child out of England to come to the United States and showing the, the absolute uh, total control that England has over this baby, they're not even allowing the parents to take the child out of England to the United States for potentially a therapy that might help this little baby. So it's total control of the patient from cradle to grave. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you're too old to be helped, I guess they'll prevent you from leaving the country too, even if you've got your wits about you and you can travel. Too bad. You're staying here so we can kill you. That's what it comes down to. It's evil. It's absolutely evil. And if we don't stop it, it's going to be here in a in a short number of years. Well, you know, uh, and you did a great job describing that. What's interesting to me is, you know, the the progress part. The, you know, you, you hear the progressives always talk about the the innovation and the ideas, and 
then you see the the final sum of what they're pushing for, and it's the opposite of that. And all for a bottom line, it kind of goes in the face of the narrative that they put out there of you know this uh, uh, bleeding heart compassion and and uh, you know well being for everybody. Uh, really, that's just a myth, is it not? Yeah, it's totally. It's not about compassion. It's not even about health care or or curing disease. It's about control. I mentioned in my article uh, online today at the Hagman Report that I had an amazing experience in 2009. The day after Obamacare was approved, I got on to, I found out about an interview that uh, John Dingell, the oldest uh, person in the House of Representatives, he'd been there for over 50 years, and before him his father had been there for 30 years. So he and his father left-wing Democrats had represented that district in Michigan for 80 years. Now, Dingle has retired, Dingle Jr., and his wife is in there. She's inherited the post. It's insane. So the day after Obamacare, he gave an obscure interview on a Detroit radio station in which he said, well, we passed Obamacare, and in essence, we finally learned how to control the people. He actually said that. So I found out about this. I got a podcast of it. I transcribed it. I published it. And it drove Dingle's office crazy. They tried to walk it back. It was picked up by Fox News, by Rush Limbaugh, by Bill O'Reilly. And it got me on the list of Media Matters and the Daily Coast. And, but we have a link to it, uh, at HagmanReport.com. We have John Dingle in his own words saying, in effect, we finally learned how to control the people with the passage of Obamacare. And God forbid if they pass single payer at some point, they will have us all by the short hairs for our entire lives. And, you know, one reason I get so emotional about this when I think about that case that's going on in Britain right now with a little baby is that in my career I've had the opportunity to cover many analogous cases. They're not exactly the same, but uh, I cover cases, and these go on all the time, but we don't hear about them except in rare instances when they break through. I covered a number of cases 30 and 40 years ago where children with cancer uh, were taken away from their parents who wanted to treat their children with a reputable but unconventional alternative therapy, and the medical establishment in their state or locality or hospital said, no, you don't have the right to do this. We're going to take your child away from you, pump that kid full of chemotherapy or whatever else we think he or she needs, and if you don't like it, too bad. Now, it turns out that in legal jurisprudence, there's, there was really no, uh, th- there was no evidence for that. Uh, I interviewed one of the leading attorneys, who, who actually is a story in, in himself, uh, Benedict Fitzgerald, and he conducted a, an examination of alternative cancer therapies for United States Senate Committee in 1953, which is a mind-blowing story. But in the 1970s and 80s, I got his input on this, and he said, it used to be appropriate for courts to decide if parents are uh, responsible enough to make medical decisions. It has never been jurisprudence in this country to make for a court to make medical decisions for a minor child. But I guess today it is because it's happening every day of the week. We just don't hear about it. I got to know a number of these families who are reported on, and I actually... Uh, attended the funeral of one of the children who didn't make it. So I I get emotional when I even think about it, when I reflect on it, that this is what it comes down to. It's a death cult. Medicine, Inc., as it's practiced in this country, is in many ways a death cult. Now, I wouldn't say that's true of every doctor, every nurse, 
every medical bureaucrat, certainly there is a need for a conventional medicine. Some of the people are doing their best, trying their best. But in the whole, it is uh, uh, it just doesn't work. And now that they're grabbing control in cahoots with the government, it used to be until after World War II, until they began after World War II, that the federal government was not really involved in healthcare. It was the private sector, 100%. Then slowly and incrementally with things like uh, Medicare in 1964, Medicaid or 1965, rather Medicaid in the mid-60s, then Obamacare, the federal government has been taking a bigger and bigger role uh, in, in the practice of medicine in this country. And again, what is their agenda? It's escalating the power, the reach, the numbers of the federal government until today, there are actually more people making a living from conventional cancer research and treatment, for example, and more bureaucrats involved with monitoring and regulating it than are dying from the disease in the United States on an annual basis. And I think about 700,000 Americans die annually from cancer, but there's actually more Americans in the medical industrial complex making a living from this endless no-win war on cancer. Nixon declared war on cancer in 1971. It was a bipartisan war passed by both houses of Congress. He promised to cure cancer by 1976, the bicentennial. Overnight, they took over the fight against cancer, pumped billions of dollars into the National Cancer Institute. Here, how many years later? 46 years later, we've still got a war on cancer. They're still talking about the, oh, the cure is just around the corner. We just need more millions of dollars, billions of dollars, excuse me. Well, billions and hundreds of billions, if not trillions, have been spent since 1971, and we're still at ground zero. It was also the model. The cancer war was the model for the next wars, the war on AIDS, the war on breast cancer, the war on God knows what. It's it's a, a it's like we've got to burn this village down in order to save it, which is what was said during the Vietnam War. We've got to kill the patient in order to maybe have, a, have some hope of saving the patient. It's absolute insanity. And I say, wake up, America, because if we don't stop this, if we don't stop this single-payer socialist communist madness that's lurking just around the corner with communists like Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, and the rest in the Democratic Party, we are screwed for all time. This is it. This is the final nail of the coffin. I, I think some of your best work, uh, Peter, is on this topic you are so well informed about this and i'm not so sure people really the general population really understand um how important this topic is from the discussion of the issues the medical issues to the system that being the single payer system uh i just have a, a and, and please i really want to have you back for a series of discussions about this to educate the the, the people and uh because your knowledge is far superior to to anyone um anyone of the talking heads on 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 television but let me ask you this um do you is it possible to repeal Obamacare, the ACA. Is it possible to repeal it and replace it? Or can we just repeal it? Is either one possible? Is a repeal and replace possible? Or is just a simple repeal period possible right now? I think God only knows, Doug. I would say probably not. But, you know, one thought I have after all my years of experience in this area, and it's a personal thought as well, is we can personally repeal. We can take steps to personally repeal Obamacare and whatever else might come at us 
from the medical industrial government complex by taking steps in our own lives to prevent illness and to treat illness, God forbid, if it occurs by a more natural, non-toxic way. You talk about this frequently on your program with Ted Bohr and other guests that you have on, the nuts and bolts of how to stay well and how to get well if you're unlucky enough to get ill. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that if you are in a car accident and fracture a limb that you don't need to go to the hospital. Obviously, you do, and you might need a hospitalization or conventional medicine for some other things, too. But in every major degenerative chronic disease, whether it's cancer, heart disease, stroke prevention, arthritis, autism, you name it, there are alternative methods which, if you research them fairly and objectively, there is a reporting in the scientific literature and in the anecdotal literature that there are other methods. So I've basically been repealing conventional medicine most of my adult life, and I say there's a lot of potential there, which gives me hope for the future and leaves me with an optimistic view, no matter whatever they're cooking up for us in the D.C. deep state swamp. Wow, very well said. Our guest, Peter Chauka, he is the author of um, a number of articles uh, on Hagman Report, just started on Hagman Report. We got his first article out there today. He's got several on uh, The American Thinker, and he's uh, been a returning guest of the show. Peter, we thank you so much for your time and uh, the great conversation that we had, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and uh, God bless you guys. God bless you, too. We'll be right back after these short messages. Don't go anywhere. Just what kind of thriller predicts the future? In three days in the belly of the beast, Daniel Holdings wrote about the God Particle before CERN actually discovered the God Particle. In As the Darkness Falls, Daniel wrote about an Islamist terrorist confederacy that rose up out of Syria and declared a caliphate three years before ISIS was ever heard of. In his newest novel, Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the Creator to His creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high net worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. 
For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in this community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Ladies and gentlemen, to this hour of the Hagman and Hagman Report, we're going to get to our next guest in just a second. We got a quick word from Greenovatives, some news from from Greenovative, and our folks over there, Mr. Alan Riggs. Since our launch with Hagman and Hagman in late September of 2016, Greenovative has enjoyed uh, a claim from our audience. Greenovative responded with changes to their product line based on Hagman audience feedback and requests for more power. They first introduced the Super G Mag charger package with replaceable power pucks and some really cool accessories. This was a big hit, but the Hagman audience wanted more, so Greenovative developed the Super G Mag complete package that had lots of batteries and lots of adapters. You guessed it, the Hagman audience wants more, and today is the day for more, inducing the Greenovative complete package with two pairs of the triple power pucks. Each pair of the triple power pucks will recharge over 300 AA batteries with one pair of the triple power pucks. GMAG chargers will recharge six AA batteries every week for an entire year. And then you can use the other triple power pucks for another year. Truly amazing. To say thanks again, Greenovative is offering a 12% discount on their GMAG complete packages that come either with two pairs of standard power pucks or two pairs of the double power pucks or two pairs of the triple power pucks. It's your choice, folks. Go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com and enter the discount code Hagman to receive your 12% discount on one or more of their complete packages. When you need it, you'll be glad you did. Uh, say a thank you to Alan Riggs and get in touch with him with any questions. You know, uh, I am so I'm so excited to have with us. We're, we're excited to have with us Chris Kabatz. Uh, I've feel like I've, I feel like I know Chris. I, I don't know him personally, but I know him by reputation, by profession. He's a just a tremendous uh, undercover investigator, security consultant. His website, understandingthethreat.com, he is the national security consultant vice president of Understanding the Threat. Go to understandingthethreat.com. But where where I was introduced to him, he's the son of Dave Gabotz, uh, uh, Chris Gabotz in uh, of the book Muslim Mafia uh, fame. Now, 
Folks, if you haven't, if you don't have a copy of this book, get your hands on this book, Muslim Mafia. It is a tremendous investigative expose into the Council on American Islamic Relations. Uh, you, I, I just can't say enough good about this book and about the investigative work product by our this guest, our next guest here, Mr. Chris Kabatz. He's uh, the son of an Air Force uh, career, Air Force OSI. A special agent. He grew up in uh, uh, various, well, as a son of a, a, a military person, grew up in a number of different locations. He's worked for several Fortune 500 companies conducting fraud investigations and asset protection, parallel to what, what my career, actually, although he's a lot younger and better looking than I am. So, uh, having said that, Chris, thank you so much for your gift of time coming on with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be on tonight. Well, I'll tell you, your your reputation precedes you, at least in my venue, uh, in the investigative realm. You, uh, you really, you, you've, uh, can we start out by talking about your role in, uh, Muslim Mafia, your role in exposing, uh, care of the Council on American Islamic Relations before it really was popular? Sure, yeah. Uh, you said it. It definitely wasn't popular to speak about uh, Islamic uh, terrorism or the caliphate or Sharia or jihad back in uh, 2007. Right. Uh, but uh, my father was a career uh, Air Force. He was uh, a federal agent, as you said earlier, with the Air Force, and he worked primarily counterintelligence operations towards the end of his career. And he retired in the late 90s, and after... Uh, 9-11, the Air Force OSI asked federal agents, uh, OSI agents, to come back, and uh, they needed a lot of help, and he actually went to the State Department, became a U.S. State Department-trained Arabic linguist, and went over to Iraq in 03 and 04 in the war there. When he came back, he was very passionate about understanding what we were up against over in the Middle East, and... Um, he started uh, doing what an investigator does, which is going straight to the stores, and he started uh, going into mosques and asking questions, and that led to a project that we call now, because of the book, The Muslim Mafia Project, and he just needed someone that he could trust to go undercover, and uh, he asked me, uh, you know, he, uh, my father's a patriot, he raised a patriot, I was, uh, I'm the last person in the world that uh, ever considered myself being right in the middle of the counter-jihad movement, but... Uh, the the rest is uh, history, as they say. I went in uh, undercover in 2007 and 2008, uh, did a fake conversion to Islam uh, in front of um, a group of Muslims at Dar al-Hijra. Now, if you're not familiar, or many of your listeners are, you, I'm sure you're familiar with Dar al-Hijra. This yep. is a mosque in northern Virginia, and the imam at the mosque prior to my uh, fake conversion there was a man by the name of Anwar al-Aki. I'm sure we've all heard of him. He's the uh, he was the moderate voice of Islam until he popped up in uh, uh, Yemen as an Al Qaeda leader. So uh, the person that brought me through my conversion at the beginning of this project was Sheikh Shaker Al Said, who was a um, executive with the Muslim American Society, which is the overt arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, meaning they don't even try to hide it uh, that they're Muslim Brotherhood here in America, and. Uh, so when I speak about Islam, uh, when I do, uh, when I brief legislators or work with citizen groups or train law enforcement, 
my experience when I talk about Islam, Sharia, and Jihad is all from learning about it in the mosques. I've been to mosques all over the country as part of this project and other projects. And um, But I found myself, after my conversion, learning about Islam from Islamic scholars, going to the mosque, learning how to pray as a Muslim, learning how to eat, learning how to interact with other Muslims, so that I would come off as a Sharia-compliant Muslim once I showed up to uh, CARE Maryland, Virginia office in Herndon, Virginia, and started working uh, as an intern there. And I ended up spending six straight months uh, undercover with CARE, both at the Herndon location and then later on in Washington, D.C., and ended up preserving 12,000 pages of documents. Wow, that's an amazing story. And, you know, I've worked as an investigator and in not in really, I mean, you do little things. I, I, I can't imagine... Uh, the amount of time that you spent undercover and what it would, what it would be like to go through that fake conversion for the purposes of going undercover. Can you talk about that a little bit? What that, what that was like? Did you have any doubts? Was there, um, what was going on in your mind during this time? You know, it, it, it really was a matter of just getting at the truth. Um, and, and the, the best way to do that was to go straight to the source. Um, look, looking back on it at the time, I mean, I was in my 20s, uh, you know, this was something that um, I was more than, than happy to do uh, for my I, country. I, I remember those times, Chris. <laughs> I am invincible, man. I can do this. <laughs> exactly. I don't know any other way to put it other than just um, that's where I was at, my, at the stage of my life. I actually, to be honest, um, yeah, there were some dark moments uh, there, but for the most part, uh, working on this project with my father, I had a lot of fun with it. I really did. So, um, you, you know, and if I could, if I could just say this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it, you know, it seems like we talk about books all of the time, and we do. WND Superstore. Okay, I I cannot recommend this book. This book to me, and I, you'll notice I've got it's tabbed and everything. I've had the, I got this book when it. You know, this was like, I think this might even be an advanced copy, but the bottom line is this. This will tell you so much. Even that's, that's really, it has been expunged from the internet today. Um, but I, I love some of the pictures in here. And man, you looked, uh, uh, not that you've aged a lot or anything like that, Chris, but, uh, some of the pictures in here, just phenomenal. Uh, you, you had, I mean, you had brass ones. Let me tell you, you have brass ones. Okay. I got to tell you, because, uh, you know, we're having worked as an undercover operative. Uh, you take some risks and j- j- just some of the images in here and how you got to where you were and stuff. Let me tell you. Congratulations! I, I, I'm sure they clang when you walk, and, and if people are offended by that, I'm sorry, but but man, you really this is amazing stuff. Um, I, so go, go to WND Superstore. By the way, use our promo code Hagman. Shameless plug for for us. WND Superstore. Get this book. Promo code Hagman. Uh, but but Chris, um, now that I got off on a tangent there, uh, yeah. The case, you were sued, right? Oh yeah, we're still in the uh, the midst of I, I something along eight years that we've been involved in this lawsuit. Oh joy! Well, yeah. we're part of that club too, just different <laughs> plaintiffs. So, um, 
what were you sued for, or what are you being sued for? Oh, it's look. Uh, okay. What we're technically being sued for is, um, I think they've whittled it down to three different charges. They started out with about nine, and this is all civil. Um, sure, but um, uh, they whittled it down to um, uh, DC and federal wiretap uh, laws and Stored Communications Act. It's completely ridiculous. Uh, essentially, they're saying uh, now D.C. is a one-party state, meaning or one-party district, meaning that only one person has to be uh, know about that there's a recording going on. That was right. myself. Yep. Um, apparently, the claim is is they're saying that I would have been privy to conversations that I wouldn't normally have if I didn't have a recording device, which is crazy. That's uh, the a hill. That's a hill, Mary. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, I gotcha. That's a Hail Mary of, of the offense. Yep. Yeah. I mean, essentially, if they, if they're correct in their assertion, then that would, uh, that would end any, uh, undercover, uh, journalism or research, uh, out there, uh, which is, which is just absurd. Uh, pe- people have a right to record in one party states. Um, but from my perspective, I really just think that they got, they felt like they got punched in the mouth figuratively, of course. And, um, and this is just a show for their donors. And look, they're one of the most litigious uh, organizations in America. They wage uh, lawfare, which is, from their perspective, a Sharia perspective, a form of jihad, um, against all kinds of Americans. So in, in many ways, I am more than happy to get up on the stand and defend what we did. It's it, This is really, from my perspective, they're just trying to save face with yes. this law. Yes. And, and I will say that um, you mentioned the word lawfare. And, again, it, it, being in that club, um, it, it's an expensive club. To, uh, the, the, the price of admission is quite high because regardless of the merits of the case, you still have to fight. You have to pay an attorney. You right. have, you know, and it, it's it's you wake up in the morning and, and you just wonder what fresh hell you're going to wake up to again. Um, you, you know, so I, I get all that. But... Um, but but seriously, you taking on this this Leviathan, uh, along with your dad and 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 how you did this, I just I have so much admiration for you. Um, what do you want to? Ta- what, what can we talk about with where we are today? Because maybe to add context to things, and again, folks, this book, critical reading, Muslim Mafia, by uh, by David Gabatz and Paul Sperry. Uh, World Net Daily, uh, WND Superstore, use promo code Hagman. It does help us out. It helps them out, helps us out. But um, where should we start, given the landscape, the the political landscape, after eight years of Obama, and, of course, previous to that, the softening up of America uh, with Islam? uh, Where do you want to take this? Well, you know, it's interesting when we're talking about Muslim Mafia, uh, this is one of those books that I would argue is more relevant now than when it came out. Agreed. Um, I mean, uh, CARE is still Hamas. CARE is still the Muslim Brotherhood. And and they were back in, in 2009 when this book came out. But this tells the story of, of who they are and how they operate. And the playbook that CARE uses and, and the Muslim Brotherhood uses here in America, uh, there's a lot of parallels with the DNC playbook because it really hasn't changed since that book came out in 2009. 
Now, when the book came out, there wasn't an Islamic State caliphate, and I think that really changed the landscape to where the average American started to realize, oh, this handful of people that were talking about the, the goal of jihadi groups all over the planet was to uh, wage jihad until they had a caliphate. Well, now we've actually seen it happen. And I think ever since the Islamic State has come around, more and more uh, Americans and, and people in the West are starting to wake up. But, but what we talked about, the political influence operations that the Muslim Brotherhood, and specifically CARE, operated in 2009, they're still doing those operations today. Mm -hmm. uh, the media manipulation and um, uh, propaganda that they're able to work with mainstream media, I mean, it's from from analyzing the enemy on this, it's incredibly impressive just how uh, how entrenched a Hamas, a jihadi organization, which CARE is a Hamas organization, per evidence in terrorism trials, including the largest terrorism financing and Hamas trial ever successfully prosecuted in U.S. history, the U.S. versus Holy Land Foundation. Um, it's amazing how knowing all of that information whenever there's a story in the Associated Press or, or other mainstream uh, media outlets, um, CARE is one of the first people that is quoted in the story, even though this is a jihadi organization. Uh, that, to me, just shows the level of penetration that they've been able to accomplish. And if anything, they've sped that up since Muslim Mafia came out in 2009. They certainly haven't slowed down at all. Uh, how is um, how, how did Obama massage this uh, um, or, or let me let me re-ask re that question or ask it differently what role do you think Obama played in the larger sense with respect to care in Islam in the United States as a whole well care uh, is uh, is a Hamas organization which is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood so care uh, is Hamas here in the United States the Muslim Brotherhood has the exact same agenda as the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, again, to establish an Islamic State under Sharia. Obama was the dream president for the Muslim Brotherhood because while the Muslim Brotherhood certainly had um, a seat at the table, they, they were certainly part of the decision-making process under the Bush years. They, they had... Um, uh, brought themselves or insinuated themselves into the administration and, and affected foreign policy, particularly when it came to the Middle East, and were, a, were beginning to affect counterterrorism training programs uh, here in the United States, they really took off during the Obama years. I mean, they were regulars at the White House. Um, people like Ingrid Mattson, Mohammed Majid, uh, these are people that Mohammed Majid, just to give you an example, is someone that was the president of the Islamic Society of North America, which per evidence entered into terrorism trials, the Islamic Society of North America is a Muslim Brotherhood organization. And he had a secret clearance and was part of the Department of Homeland Security Advisory Committee under the Obama years. Um, he is not alone in that. There are, there are literally um, dozens and dozens of Muslim brothers that were influencing our uh, the administration, influencing our counterterrorism, literally purging from uh, counterterrorism training manuals any reference to Islam, Sharia, or Jihad, even though 
of jihadis are saying that they're fighting in the example of Muhammad to establish an Islamic state under Sharia. If you can't train the national security apparatus, uh, if you can't train FBI agents, DHS agents on jihadi doctrine and uh, modus operandi, then how are they ever going to understand how to locate, investigate, and prosecute jihadis? And that was the goal of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they were welcomed right in with open arms uh, into the Obama administration. It's interesting. Um, Chris, I want to kind of take a, a go into left field a little bit here and ask you more of a question of society and pop culture. Why Islam is becoming so accepted in circles uh, like Hollywood, uh, like in the major political circles? Why is it becoming so kind of trendy to be Islamic? What's the appeal that you see there? Well, it's twofold. Uh, well, more than twofold, but I'll just I'll just limit it to, to to a few of the major ones. So we have to remember that the Muslim Brotherhood has been at this since the '60s. The first, uh, when I say at this, meaning per their own documents, they say that they want to destroy American civilization from within, and they have been at this since the '60s. The first national Islamic organization in America. The Muslim Students Association was founded in in 1963, and they have created hundreds of organizations to affect every aspect of life, professional organizations, interfaith dialogue organizations, media organizations, and, and of course, on into care. And one of the organizations that works primarily Hollywood to influence screenwriters, um, producers, is the Muslim Public Affairs Council. So they will work directly with writers and producers to make sure that nothing offensive to Muslims, which the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, because its impact, uh, gets into scripts and gets in onto TV shows. Um, and whenever there, something does leak out that, or come out that they don't like, then there's a backlash that uh, that show will have to face. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is is darker than that. This is just... There is an element, there's almost two societies working in America right now, from my perspective, where you've got Americans that love this country, they're patriotic, um, and I would say one of the delineating factors would have been people that voted for President Trump this past election. And then you've got this other aspect of society, particularly led by the hard-left Marxist socialist groups, that want to tear down every aspect of America that the Founding Fathers built this country on. Uh, and we're seeing this with mainstream media that is working with the progressives and the hard left because they're one and the same more, more often than not. And then in pop culture, that all that is all just melting together. And it's amazing to me that while the jihadi groups and, and Islam uh, in general is antithetical to everything that the so-called progressives stand for. Where they agree is they want to destroy the West, particularly destroy America, have a revolutionary revolution here, and build up this this socialist uh, Marxist uh, state. And um, in order to do that, you have to create chaos in order to have a revolution. And uh, that's where the progressives and the hard left Marxists and the jihadis are willing to work together. And uh, now, am I saying that they sit around in meeting rooms and, and talk about this? 
No, that's just the general consensus. Are there leaders within these movements that do have meetings, uh, whether it's jihadi groups or, or leftists? Absolutely. And they, and we're seeing them work together and we've seen them walk hand in hand for the last few years. So th- there's a lot that goes into this, but at the end of the day, the simple answer is, is that the jihadi groups and the socialists and the uh, Marxists want to destroy America and they're willing to work together on that. You know, this is a subject I really want to get into. We're about three minutes away from the bottom of the hour network break. Uh, I'd like to get into that a little bit more afterwards. I got some specific questions about some, uh, some people. But, uh, as we approach the uh, bottom of the hour break, you again are the vice president and security consultant for understanding the threat, uh, which is under, which is located at understandingthethreat.com. Uh, you provide, uh, in fact, your organization is the only organization in America uh, which is training our leaders, elected officials, and law enforcement and others about the global Islamic movement and jihad networks in communities around the nation. Just do you mind give us a couple of minutes, a uh, uh, couple of minute uh, summary of your organization understanding the threat uh, as we approach the break? Sure. So we work with legislators, uh, leaders at the federal, state, and local level, um, citizen groups, and law enforcement to dismantle the jihadi network. Uh, we feel like there, uh, our assessment is, is that this is a vast network here in America that's working every angle of the jihad, and it's so critical that we understand the threat before we can even start to strategize about how to dismantle the jihadi network here in America. Uh, so our flagship program, besides working with legislators and citizens groups, is a three-day program for law enforcement where on the first day we train about Sharia. We spend eight hours going over Sharia law and how that affects uh, law enforcement. The second day we break down the jihadi network here in America, which is focused primarily on the Muslim Brotherhood, but we go into other groups that are operating here as well and abroad. And the doctrine that's that's driving those groups, which again it goes back to day one on the program, which is Sharia. And on day three, we uh, we uh, give them now that they know Sharia and they know the network, investigative tools on how to uh, locate, investigate, and prosecute jihadis. And I'll tell you what, you could not have timed that better. <laughs> that's fantastic. It, your organization, understanding the threat, understandingthethreat.com, folks, uh, go to that site. Check it out. Look at the, their mission statement. Look at what they are all about. The resources there is, is the training. How does one, uh, let's say, a police department in our area would like to uh, partake? Just contact you. Is that? Yeah, just go on the website and uh, under the contact tab, and uh, and let us know, and uh, we'll we'll definitely reach out to them and give them some more information. Yeah, actually, because I did have a conversation with a. Uh, with a uh, one of the brass of, of a local police department here, not too, not too far from here, and uh, we were talking about this very issue. So you might be getting a call uh, based on our recommendation. We're talking with Chris Kabatz, understandingthethreat.com. But um, the the guy featured is the under undercover operative in this book right here, Muslim Mafia. Go to WorldNet Daily. Go to, go to WND Superstore. Superstore.wnd.com. Use the promo code Hagman and uh, grab yourself a copy of this book. You will not be sorry. The, just the 
part of about Anwar El Alaki alone. Ah, worth the worth the price of the book, plus much more. Folks, stay right where you're at. Network break coming up. More with Chris Kabatz on the other side. Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. Uh, folks, I'm going to direct your attention to MasterPreps.com. MasterPreps.com. Wow. Uh, MasterPreps.com, uh, the sponsor of our show, MasterPreps.com. That's MasterPreps.com. Take a visit there. High-quality items, made-in-America items. I mean, anything, everything you possibly want from uh, cooking uh, utensils, uh, cooking frying pans. To, I mean, it is, it'll blow you away. Absolutely, Erickson. It's insane. I mean, Wow. Look at the products. Folks, visit masterpreps.com. Again, welcome to the Hagman the Hagman Report family. Masterpreps.com. I mean, wow, it's insane. Masterpreps.com. Are you ready for what comes next? Hi, I'm Grace Gonzalez from Train Post in the Woods. We are an American family owned company founded and built on skills and knowledge gained from responding to 18 major disasters in the U.S. and around the world. We found that most people don't have enough food and water to survive, let alone any medicinals to save their life. We are offering 25% off our must-have American Heritage Armies kit. It contains 12 homeopathic armies, a booklet that goes over everything in your kit, and our brand new book, Major Disasters Lessons Learned. Just enter coupon code HAGMAN. In life or a disaster, you must be able to take care of yourself. You may not be a medical doctor, and your grandmother and your great-grandmother probably weren't either, but they still knew how to minister to their family's health issues, and so can you. Check out our American Heritage Armies kit at www.changewilsonwoods.com. Your life may depend on it. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Charles, the guy whose voice is heard announcing for the Hagman and Hagman Report right here on YouTube and across the Global Star Radio Network. There have been many people wondering whose music is being played during those breaks. Well, you guessed it. And we're very pleased to announce that all that music and 11 brand new songs from the CD New Jerusalem is set for release on April 10th for download on iTunes. That means you can help support my ministry and be blessed by this awesome, inspiring recording. I have been fortunate to work with some phenomenal musicians from around the world that helped us put this recording together in the studio. Simply go to joecharlesmusic.com and click on the iTunes link. Or, if you'd rather have a CD, we'll send one right out to you. Just leave me your email and we'll get right back to you. And thanks to Doug and Joe Hagman for making this all possible. God bless. Welcome to the Hagman Report, HagmanReport.com. My special thanks to, uh, give a special thanks to Michael Thompson, WND, and uh, Connie Hernandez as well. Thank you both. God bless you both. Uh, great people at WND. 
superstore.wnd.com where you can get Muslim Mafia. Highly recommend it. All, all their stuff, but Muslim Mafia indeed. Uh, Chris Kabatz is really kind of like the uh, star player in that, in my view anyway. Um, it's just an amazing read, and it's more relevant, as Chris says, more relevant today. It, not not just as relevant, but even more relevant today than it was at the time it was written. And uh, I admire Chris for his tenacity, his uh, uh, courageousness, his courage, and and his investigative ability uh, very much. And understanding the threat is, in fact, the website to go to. But Chris, um, let me just, uh, rather than go where I thought we'd go before the break, let me ask you this. You had uncovered... Uh, uh, it, it's always investigations. You, you follow the money, and, and and there's always seems to be criminal elements involving money. You had uncovered a fraud scheme involving care, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Let's get into that. Uh, for those people who are unfamiliar with the entire process, it's in the book. But for those people who are unfamiliar with it, talk to us like we have we know nothing about it, and let's just kind of get into it. Uh, okay. All right. Sure. So when I when I first began my internship at um, the Herndon office, the Care Maryland Virginia office in Herndon Virginia, um, within just a couple of weeks, we uncovered a fraud scheme where essentially the resident attorney. There was only one resident attorney. This is a satellite office for care. Uh, one resident attorney that they were putting out brochures to Muslims in the area, saying, you know, if you have trouble with your employer. Uh, they're not allowing you to wear your hijab or, or something like that, then, um, or your immigration case, then contact our resident attorney. And what we were able to uncover and show was that the one resident attorney, and remember, this is an organization that bills itself as a Muslim civil rights organization, uh, and their one resident attorney in this office was taking money from Muslims to handle their immigration cases, the problem was he wasn't actually representing them in their immigration cases because he wasn't even an attorney. He had never practiced law. He had never passed the state bar exam, um, never uh, wasn't licensed to practice law anywhere in the United States, and he had a rap sheet out of Philadelphia. That was CARE's civil rights uh, resident attorney. And so when CARE got wind of this, and the executives at Washington, D.C. got wind of this, rather than doing the right thing, they actually contacted the victims and made them sign a document saying that they wouldn't disclose this to the media. And then, rather than contacting the the police and contacting the State Bar Association and telling them that, hey, we're a civil rights organization, but we didn't take five minutes to vet our one attorney, uh, they did the opposite of the right thing. They uh, closed down their offices, they closed down their email accounts, their bank accounts, and then they started shredding documents. Now, if you're an intern in an office, that's the person that does the boring work like shredding, right? So I was the one that was tasked with shredding uh, documents, and that was the beginning (laughs) of me preserving evidence at that office. That's how I ended up getting 12,000 pages of documents. Uh, a lot of those came out of that office. 
Now, because that office closed down, uh, the executive director actually gave me a recommendation so that I could go right into the Washington, D.C. office. And they never vetted me because I got a recommendation from the executive director of the Herndon office. Um, so in many ways, as far as the project goes, it was fortuitous that right there, if I wouldn't have been in that office at that time, uh, they would have closed that office and no one would have ever known why they closed the office. Now, my father ended up contacting the, the Muslim victims of this fraud scheme, and uh, several of them agreed to sue care. And so there is a lawsuit going on right now where the victims of this fraud scheme are suing care. So, um, yeah, we're, we're doing our part to, to, uh, to, uh, get at these jihadis any way we can. You, you uh, I, I take it, uh, I take it care hasn't, uh, sent you any invitations or Christmas cards or, you know, uh, uh, Happy Ramadan uh, wishes, right? Uh, yeah, like, no, you know, Ibrahim Hooper was trying to help me get married uh, while I was undercover there, and uh, now he has ceased to offer his assistance in that matter. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, so okay, and obviously, when when a, when an investigation is as effective as yours was, the blowback. In, in, in extensive and intense, and of course, so so you're to be shredding documents. You're not shredding documents. You're actually securing that for evidence, and, and you're actually when, when reading the book. I mean, there's there's a lot of information of um, activity that that would be, in my view, and this is my personal opinion, that would be considered. Seditious or antithetical to the Constitution and to, against, against the government, but but yet here's a lawsuit, you know, against you. Um, by by the way, where and, and if if we cover this already, I, I apologize. Where does that stand at this point? Is it the pretty much? Yeah. So from from my understanding. Um, and I don't follow this day to day, but my understanding is, is that all of the pretrial proceedings are completed. Um, so it is, I am hoping that we will get to go to trial either at the end of this year or the, um, first half of next year. Okay. That is, that is where we stand. These things take up. Last year too, so. Man, I mean, <laughs> again, uh, understanding how these work. Being a part of that exclusive club, these take a long time and, and certainly a lot of money. Uh, I, eight years, you said, eight years in. Yeah, I, I yeah. the book came out in two, late two thousand nine, and um, if it's not eight years, it's somewhere around seven because right. I think the lawsuit came out two thousand nine or two thousand ten. So. And, and yeah, that's a lot of money, uh, and it, it it quite the the emotional toll it has on. I'm sure it has on um, you. Uh, uh, the financial toll is just amazing. All right, um, and I understand too. You know how delicate you have to be when it comes to this kind of stuff. Now, well, the nice thing is most of it's all in the book anyway. So, well, there there you go, and that's an even that that by itself is a good reason, folks. Muslim mafia, uh, WD Superstore, and again, thank you to Michael Thompson. And uh, Connie Hernandez, but uh, okay. 
where we stand right now, you've got uh, we, we've got two Islamic or Muslim congressmen, Andre Carson, Keith Ellison. Um, but by the way, let me ask you about Obama. Do you believe Obama was, or I'm sorry, is a Muslim? And in, in, in the circle of the, that that you are in in care, any reference to Obama? Any inside scoop you can kind of you know, give us? Everyone was incredibly excited about President Obama. Um, I don't think it matters, and I don't mean this to dodge the question. Sure. I just mean that I don't think it mattered to them from a policy standpoint. He did everything the Muslim Brotherhood could have ever dreamed of. So whether from their perspective, whether he was a Muslim or not, they didn't care because even if they would have had a Muslim president, they couldn't have done more for the Muslim Brotherhood than President Obama did anyway. Right. So that's why I say I really don't uh, I, I don't know one way or the other. Um, I've heard a lot of anecdotal stories, but I, I don't know. And from a policy, national security perspective, it doesn't matter because he did everything the Muslim Brotherhood could have ever dreamed of. And 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 you're you're exactly right. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, where do we stand? with respect to our national security and care? Uh, because, we, I mean, there's so many different directions that we can go. And I also want to ask you about the Awan brothers. Have you heard about the Awan brothers? I have, uh, okay. yeah. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, I, I'll ask that first. Uh, the Awan brothers, uh, th- three brothers, uh, and two two of their wives working in the IT department of the Democratic uh, Congress, so, yeah. uh, for those who don't know, any thoughts or uh, uh, assessments on on that situation? Well, you know, just just uh, simply, if if we can't even vet our own people that are working in IT on Capitol Hill, uh, how in the world do we think that we're going to vet Muslim refugees coming over here? Um, Good point. But that's a sidebar. Uh, look, we there is catastrophic failure across the board on vetting uh, Muslims. There, they, there seems to be, and it's not it's not a coincidence. That's what CARE has worked for. That's been their agenda on Capitol Hill is to get everybody walking on eggshells when it comes to Islam and Muslims to where they 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 won't do due diligence on investigating uh, and vetting uh, the people that they have right in there. And um, so for for every Awad Brothers that gets caught um, in this situation, know that there are plenty more out there right now that are gathering intelligence that were never vetted properly and uh, will do damage or harm to the U.S. in the future. So it's just, it's just one example, one data point of how we have failed on this issue. I understand. And that, that's a very good point. Are, are uh, obviously the what President Trump has attempted to do. Many refer to it as a Muslim ban. I, I do suspect that you feel that that that's appropriate given the um, political and spirit or religious ideology of of, of Muslims. Yeah. No. Look, uh, I always say when I'm asked about the travel ban, and I see this on social media quite a bit, where. Um, where people will say, oh, it's even the people defending the policy will say um, it's not a Muslim ban. It's not a Muslim ban. It's just these particular countries. 
um, it's a good first step, but 100%, um, I don't believe that, that there is any problem from a national security perspective if there were a Muslim ban to where we said, look, this is an ideology that teaches the Sharia, and there's no Islam without Sharia, there's no Sharia without Islam, that teaches that the entire planet should be subjugated under Sharia law. Now, I don't want my family and my, um, uh, and everyone else's family in America to ever have to worry about being subjugated under Sharia law. And so, uh, why in the world would we allow, um, Muslims here in the first place? And, and for people that don't understand this threat and really don't, uh, haven't, uh, read or studied, uh, Sharia, uh, don't understand what Islam is truly about. They only have snippets. Um, if, if once you understand this threat, I've been to mosques all over the country. I never heard a peaceful version of Islam at any mosque I ever attended. Every Islamic scholar I ever learned Islam about said that there's only one Islam and the Quran is the word of their God, Allah, and Muhammad is the perfect example of a man. And Muhammad was a warlord that beheaded people, uh, that uh, told his followers and himself said that he had been commanded to fight unbelievers until they um, submitted to Islam or paid the jizya, so they submitted to Islamic law. But the, the point is, this is not a peaceful ideology. It's never been a peaceful ideology. We have 1,400 years of history showing otherwise. Uh, why in the world would we allow Muslims in mass to come into this country? That being said, of course I support the president's travel ban, but it wouldn't hurt my feelings if it was expanded to include a Muslim ban. And I know I went a little long on that, but I get a little fired up. On no, man. You can go long, <laughs> and believe me. Uh Chris, I got, I got a question from a kind of a different direction, um, and I'm truly curious about this. I've read a lot of reports where, and I don't know if if your uh, time undercover or what you've seen uh, can lend any credence or, or take away from this, but we've seen a lot of cases where uh, the federal government, the FBI, will gather Muslim patsies, as they say, and I think they, not for the preaching, and we're all locked. There were some people under him uh, who carry out attacks that were under his teachings that were uh, allegedly used as patsies, where the FBI will set them up with weapons, guns. Have you seen any type of, the, of this activity uh, before in your well, undercover operations? That's that's one of the the things that they will do as far as stings is just get um is just get uh, people to think that they're they're actually arming themselves. I mean, like for the instance of Terry Lee Lowen. Uh, this was an FBI sting in Wichita, um, in, in Kansas where, uh, he, uh, was thought he was driving a van full of explosives onto a tarmac at the airport and was going to uh, blow up a plane of innocent passengers sitting there on the tarmac. And of course they were all inert. So th- that's certainly a, a valid technique that the FBI will use in their, in their stings. Um, does that, in my experience, mine working undercover was primarily with a different type of jihadi, which the jihadis that I'm working with in Washington, D.C., their jihad was focused on political influence operations and, um, you know, intelligence, espionage, treason, uh, and media manipulation. That was more the focus of their 
from a Sharia standpoint, jihad is total warfare. And so one of the lines of operation in this jihad is physical terrorist activity. That's the one that we in the West, particularly here in the United States, has been focused on for years. Uh, where we are failing catastrophically is understanding that political influence operations are happening every single day and it is necessarily thwarting our efforts to go after the terrorists because we have outsourced our national security uh, training to Muslim Brotherhood so that we don't offend Muslims. I mean, this is just pure insanity. That tone is changing now that President Trump is in office. I'm seeing good signs and good things happening under President Trump. I'm incredibly hopeful uh, that he will be able to dismantle this network. So, uh, But that's what we've been up against for the last eight years. I don't know if I really answered your question there. Or yeah, maybe I think you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about, if you don't mind, one of my favorite uh, jihadi ladies, Linda Sarsour. Oh yeah. yeah. Let's have a chat about her. Uh, such a stellar human being. You have to be careful because she just put a tweet out saying that she's taking names of all those people that are defaming her. Okay. Uh, uh, hang on just a second, Chris. Uh, Linda Sorsor, Hagman Report, Doug Hagman, me personally. Okay. Uh, defaming you? No. We're just speaking the truth. In my personal opinion, which, by the way, we're still allowed to have in this country, you are a Muslim jihadist. Absolutely. All right. So, but what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts, I, I don't know how um, you defame a jihadi in the first place. There you go. Uh, but, um, look, this is a person that... Uh, I think it's the poster child for for uh, what's been called the red-green axis, where you've got the hard-left Marxist socialist groups working hand-in-hand hand with the jihadi groups. Uh, for me, Linda Sarsour is the poster child of that. She worked with uh, uh, socialist organizations to uh, in this uh, women's march against Trump earlier in the year. Um, her family is Hamas. She has family members that are uh, members of Hamas that are um, convicted terrorists. Um, so uh, with Hamas she uh, is on the Muslim Brotherhood speaking circuit for crying out loud she travels around to ISNA the Islamic Society of North America CARE conferences and speaks uh, these are Muslim Brotherhood organizations in fact when she made the comments about jihad that was at an Islamic Society of North America conference so you've got a jihadi Linda Sarsour speaking at a jihadi conference the Muslim Brotherhood conference and she calls for jihad which why wouldn't she she's a jihadi at a jihadi conference calling for jihad and I, you know, I would just say well, you know, no one should be shocked that she's doing that but what concerns me or what just blows my mind why in the world hasn't the secret service knocked on her door because in my view, what I heard, at least this is my impression of what I heard, she's threatening the security of the president, of the office of the presidency, and of course our country. Of course. You and I understand that because we understand what jihad is. Right. Um, but look, this narrative that jihad is like spiritual yoga and it, it's just absolutely insane. But um, 
the Muslim Brotherhood has done a phenomenal job of working with the media that to hammer this over and over and over. Jihad is a peaceful uh, internal struggle. Um, jihad for 1400 years has always been warfare against non-Muslims. Uh, every aspect of war. And I've mentioned them several times, but I just really want to hammer this point home. When they say jihad, they mean total warfare against the civilization, whatever it takes. Intelligence gathering, treason, sedition, um, espionage, political influence operations, media, interfaith dialogue is an aspect of the jihad. Uh, and of course, shooting things and blowing things up. Uh, but she knows what she means when she says jihad. She knows that that means she is calling for Muslims to wage jihad, to wage war against the Trump administration. And because, as a devout Muslim, her purpose would be the same as al-Qaeda's or the Islamic States or Hezbollah's or al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or the Taliban or fill in the blank. They mm -hmm. all say the same thing. Yep. They want to wage jihad until the entire planet's under Sharia, and she knows that. But it's been so fascinating for me uh, to watch this playbook that they use where uh, people like Hassan, uh, Hassan Shibley, the uh, director of Karen Florida, uh, got on uh, television with Ben Shapiro. Absolutely loved that interview. I thought uh, Mr. Shapiro did a great job of calling him out. Um, but saying that we want to, uh, what, what was it? We want to reclaim the word jihad. Right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> To laugh because I've, I I know about Islam from from Islamic scholars and they are phenomenal at, at working this uh, at working this double speak. Uh, he knows exactly what jihad is. He also knows that as a Muslim he is obliged to lie if it advances the jihad. And so that's why you can you can see him get on TV, be perfectly comfortable saying that he wants to reclaim the word jihad, knowing exactly that Islamic scholars have agreed. Uh, for 1400 centuries, centuries that jihad is warfare against non-Muslims. Amen. Um, just to give you a heads up, Chris, I'm going to, uh, we're going to edit this segment of your appearance and I'm going to tweet it to, uh, Linda along with my comments. Um, uh, just because I, I just feel like it. I, uh, your comments, spiritual yoga, I had to write that down, jihad. Uh, it, Crack me up. We, we got about five minutes before the end of the program. Uh, take it wherever you want to take it, uh, Chris. Uh, uh, going to give you a wide berth because um, I, you've got just so much information, and there's so much that's topical and relevant. Uh, we'd love to have you come back, by the way. But but uh, in, in, in the remaining five minutes, sure, it, it's, you got the floor. Okay, sure. Well, you know. As I, as I mentioned earlier in the program, you know, I really am the last person that I ever thought would be involved in the counter jihad movement. Um, but I also feel like this is a calling. Um, there are certain people that when they, when they hear about jihad or Islam or Sharia and they start reading about it, they feel compelled to learn more and they want to get involved. And, and I just feel like some people are called to do this. And as I've mentioned, this is a war of narratives. So if there are people that are listening um, to me right now, just we need your help in this war of narratives. And one of the, the main war of narratives that's going on is you've got this whole side of this one narrative saying that this issue, the uh, jihad, terrorism, has nothing to do with Islam. And then there's the narrative of the truth. 
And what we need you to do is get involved on social media. Uh, we have uh, UTT underscore USA. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, and then my handle on Twitter is CareVGobbits. But get involved. Um, sign up for our newsletter at understandingthethreat.com. Get a uh, copy of Muslim Mafia uh, on the World Net Daily's uh, site. Learn as much as you possibly can so that you can speak intelligently about this threat to your friends, your neighbors, your pastors, your sheriffs. The bottom line is we are witnessing the collapse of Europe as we speak right now. There are certain countries in Europe, short of a miracle, that will become an Islamic state. And our assessment and understanding of the threat is that we are not very far behind Europe in that. Um, so we just need you to get involved in some way, shape, or form in the counter-jihad movement. And uh, at Understanding the Threat, we are more than happy to do that. Contact me anytime at Understanding the Threat or on Twitter. Uh, but look, I've seen this firsthand. I have watched the Muslim Brotherhood uh, specifically care work to insinuate themselves on Capitol Hill and to... Uh, poison our foreign policy and our counterterrorism policy here in the United States. And I have to tell you, I've witnessed it. They work incredibly hard at this, and they work at this day in and day out, and we need patriots, the same patriots that stood up and voted for President Trump this past election. We need those same patriots, that same enthusiasm to stand up and stand up against not only the jihadis, but they're the jihadi enablers uh, in the left, the mainstream media particularly. Uh, we need you in this fight. Uh, we cannot assume that President Trump can handle this going forward. I, I expect great things from President Trump on this issue, but President Trump cannot dismantle, personally, the jihadi network in every county in America. He needs Americans to stand up and say, we want to do this with you. We need pastors to speak truthfully from the pulpit about Islam so that their congregation will support sheriffs when they start to dismantle the jihadi network in their area. This is going to take a team effort uh, of a patriotic Americans, county by county, state by state. And uh, we need you also to urge President Trump to uh, get the uh, Muslim Brotherhood designated a terrorist organization and urge uh, Attorney General uh, Sessions to uh, indict the unindicted co-conspirators in the Holy Land Foundation trial to include CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, and ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America. Amen. I'm 100% behind you on that, folks. And, Chris, none of us can afford to be spectators out there. We have to get involved. And I want to thank you uh, and your organization, Understanding the Threat, for being at the tip of the spear. Certainly, uh, my regards to, our regards to your your father, uh, Paul Sperry, as well, for your fine book and your work in this book, Muslim Mafia. Go to WD Superstore get this book also use promo code hagman you got to do that though use promo code hagman um but thank you for everything you've done and continue to do understandingthethreat.com is the website get involved folks chris thanks so much and even even very gracious 
Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, so I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, we we have to do we have to do it again. I'm going to hold you to that. Meanwhile, uh, I'll I'll uh, send a, a tweet out to Linda just to let her know. Oh, sure, <laughs> sure. We want her to be in the loop too. All right, all right, brother. Thank you. God bless you, my friend. Stay safe. All right. You too. Thank you. All right, Chris Kabatz, uh guy that I just I really great interview. Yeah, you know, I just I really like him. Uh, he. Uh, Boy, you just just what he's done in this book is, or what he's done is is reflected in this book. Fantastic book! Uh, don't forget, WorldNet Daily Superstore. Use promo code Hagman. Want to thank Michael Thompson uh, from WND and um, uh, Connie Hernandez, and also you know Thomas Lifson from American Thinker. Thank and thank each and every one of you. Uh, thank you so much for being part of our our show, Joe. That'll do it for us tonight. Until tomorrow, stay safe, God bless, and have a great evening.